Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. And I want to thank our witness. I know she has uh, significant responsibilities right now at the UN Security Council. Ben and I had a chance uh, this week to meet with her and all the members. Uh, quite educational, I hope, on both sides. But uh, we certainly appreciate you being here, and certainly I'll introduce you in just a moment. But today's hearings, today's hearing will review United Nations peacekeeping operations and explore opportunities for reform to make UN peacekeeping work better in the U.S. national interest. As a permanent member of the Security Council and the largest contributor by far to the UN peacekeeping budget, the U.S. has a particular interest in how UN peacekeeping mandates are set and operations are carried out. The United States cannot be everywhere all the time. There is an important role for UN peacekeeping and supporting U.S. interests for security and stability around the world. Today's UN peacekeeping is evolving in many ways. Traditionally, missions have focused primarily on negotiating peace agreements, inserting blue helmets to separate conflicting parties over, over these agreements, and generally monitoring and keeping the peace. UN peacekeepers now are being asked to take on new and difficult responsibilities, such as civilian protection, disarming active combatants, or developing the capacity to engage on the anti-terrorism front. These new missions and mandates raise many questions, which we certainly will be exploring today. What are the risks when UN peacekeepers actively engage combatants in a war zone? Do UN peacekeepers forego their neutrality in these instances? And if so, what are the implications for our interest? If UN peacekeepers are asked to provide logistic support in humanitarian crises, such as the Ebola fight in West Africa, what challenges, uh, does, do, what challenges does that raise? I am particularly concerned with recent disturbing reports of sexual exploitation and abuse by certain UN peacekeeping troops. The current UN policy is zero tolerance, but such abuses continue with disturbing regularity. So it's our hope to uh, find some common sense ways to address these issues and explore, exploring these and other topics such as U.S. peacekeeping assessment. We again want to thank our distinguished witness for being here and I'll turn it over to our ranking member for his comments. Well, thank you, uh, Chairman Corker, and I very much appreciate you convening this hearing on an important topic and I want to thank all of our distinguished panelists today extraordinary uh, individuals who've given so much uh, to our country. Uh, we thank you all for your participation and your continued service to our, to our country, particularly Ambassador Powers. Good to see you here. Um, I have long believed the United Nations at its best can be a powerful partner of the United States, advancing global peace and security with far less cost and more effectively than if we act alone. When you had the UN presence, it's a global presence and that's far preferable than having a U.S. or sole one country presence. The U.N. does many things right. It assists more than 60 million refugees and displaced people fleeing conflict, famine, and persecution with life-saving assistance. It provides food to 90 million people in 80 countries. It vaccinates 58% of the world's children, saving no less than 3 million lives. Recently, it launched the Sustainable Development Goals which if fully embraced could have a powerful impact globally on reducing corruption and poor governance. In short, the UN is capable of and has already done a great deal of good in the world. But I believe that the UN could be stronger and much more effective if there were greater transparency and accountability across the entire organization. 
The UN's continuing anti-Israel bias is deeply unhelpful to our shared interests in a peaceful, stable Middle East. In the case of Syria, the Assad regime continues its indiscriminate barrel bombing and slaughter of civilians and those responsible for war crimes have yet to be held accountable. But let's be clear, the United States cannot ensure international security alone, nor should it have to. The United Nations, and specifically the UN peacekeeping, remains one of the best burden-sharing tools we have to help end war, protect a civilian population, and secure territory. By drawing upon the financial and human capacities of all UN member states, the UN peacekeeping helps the United States share the responsibility of promoting global stability and reduces the need for unilateral intervention. United Nations peacekeeping has managed to protect hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians, with more than 120,000 military and police personnel currently serving as part of 16 missions on four continents. UN peacekeepers now represent the largest deployed military force in the world. There are more UN peacekeeping missions today because peacekeepers are being asked to do more in increasingly dangerous, remote, and deadly operational environments. We need to recognize this and make sure that the United Nations and the troops contributing countries are given peacekeepers who are placed in harm's way the protective equipment, training, support that they deserve. Peacekeepers themselves are often seen as legitimate targets for attack by extremist groups and others. We saw that recently in the horrific attacks in Mali, where terrorists linked to al-Qaeda killed 20 people, including an American from Maryland. The UN peacekeeping mission in Mali has suffered 42 fatalities at the hands of the militants since January 2013. We know that the UN peacekeeping is a cost-effective tool when compared to other military options. The UN annual peacekeeping budget makes the budget only makes up about 0.5% of the world's total military expenditures. I think this is a particularly important moment, considering that we are debating the omnibus and dealing with the fiscal issues of our country and trying to balance our budgets. So let me bring it closer to home. The UN mission, the cost per peacekeeper per year is about $16,000. In 2014, each U.S. soldier in Afghanistan cost $2.1 million. Moreover, according to the study by the GAO, UN peacekeeping operations are eight times less expensive than funding a comparable U.S. force. This is not to say the U.S. share of peacekeeping dues should continue unchanged. I think the chairman has raised a good point about reform in the United Nations and the way they do their budget. The scale of the assessment should be reworked, and I am confident that Ambassador Power and her UN team are focused on that goal as well. Maintaining the legitimacy of the UN peacekeeping is essential. Nothing will erode it faster than the horrific reports that we received on sexual abuse by peacekeepers in certain missions. I have long been concerned about these disturbing reports of sexual exploitation and abuse. As the largest contributor to the United Nations and as the permanent member of the UN Security Council, the United States has a responsibility to ensure that the United Nations uphold the highest standards of professionalism in peacekeeping operations. The failure by the United Nations to hold individual peacekeepers, their commanders, and troops contributing countries accountable for verifiable allegations of abuse is unacceptable. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon recently announced a series of proposals to combat sexual exploitation and abuse in peacekeeping at a meeting of the representatives from over 100 troop contributing countries. That's only a start. More must be done by both the United Nations and the member states, and I look forward to hearing about how the United States can continue to push for these effective reforms. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses and having a robust discussion. Thank you, Senator Cardin. We have uh, two distinguished panels today. We want to thank uh, all who are here to share their wisdom. Uh, obviously, our first person is the 
permanent rep, uh, representative to the U.S. mission to the United Nations, uh, Samantha Power. We thank you for being here today with a very tight schedule. We also thank you for bringing Haley back, uh, who served so well with Senator Coons here and, and uh, was one of, the, one of the bright people we had here on the committee amongst many. But uh, we thank you both for being here. If you could keep your comments uh, to about five minutes or so, we'd appreciate it. And then we look forward to Q&A. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, uh, for convening this hearing, and thank you all uh, distinguished members of the committee for making time uh, to be here uh, to discuss peacekeeping. This committee is acutely aware of the extent to which conflicts on the other side of the globe uh, can come back and threaten American security. We've seen time and again how conflicts can displace millions of people, upend markets, and destabilize entire regions. All too recently and all too frequently, we've seen how such instability can attract and enable violent extremist groups who exploit the vacuum of authority to terrorize civilians, recruit new members, and plan, launch, or inspire attacks. UN peacekeepers play a vital role in the international community's efforts to address war, violence, and instability. As President Obama said in September, we know that peace operations are not the solution to every problem, but they do remain one of the world's most important tools to address armed conflict. Peacekeepers can help resolve conflict, shore up stability, deny safe harbor to extremists, and protect civilians from atrocities, all of which serve core American interests and reflect deep American values, while ensuring greater burden sharing by the international community. This administration has consequently been working aggressively to ensure that UN peacekeeping operations are better able to meet the demands of international peace and security, which as has been noted uh, by both the chairman and the ranking member, those requirements have changed considerably over just the last 20 years. Peacekeepers today are undertaking more missions. The number of uniformed personnel has risen from fewer than 20,000 15 years ago to over 100,000 today. They are assuming greater risk. Two-thirds of peacekeepers are operating in active conflicts, the highest percentage in history. And they are assigned broad and increasingly complex responsibilities, ranging from disarming armed groups to facilitating the safe delivery of humanitarian aid to protecting civilians from those who wish them harm. Today, 98% of uniformed personnel in UN missions around the world are under orders to protect civilians as part of their mandate. This is not the peacekeeping, uh, your mother's peacekeeping, your father's peacekeeping, your grandfather's peacekeeping, it has evolved significantly. While peacekeeping has never been more important to American interests, it has also never been more demanding. And that is why in September, President Obama issued the first presidential memorandum on multilateral peace operations in more than 20 years, directing a wide range of actions to strengthen and modernize UN operations, including by building partner capacity, providing US support, and leading reform of UN peacekeeping. I just want to briefly, Mr. Chairman, touch on uh, a, key, a few key lines of effort that we have pursued. The, these are described in greater detail in my written submission. First, we are working to ensure that countries with the will to perform 21st century peacekeeping, that they have the capacity to do so. One way we are doing this is through the African Peacekeeping Rapid Response Partnership, or APREP, which President Obama announced in August 2014. Through APREP, the United States is investing in the capacity of six African countries that have proven themselves leaders in peacekeeping. In exchange, these countries have committed to maintain the forces and equipment necessary to deploy rapidly. 
This initiative builds upon the Global Peace Operations Initiative launched under President George W. Bush, which is our primary tool for building partner nation peacekeeping capacity. And it will help ensure that more soldiers deployed for peacekeeping missions will be fully prepared. I hope that the Senate and House will fully fund this important initiative in future years. Second, we are expanding the pool of troop and police contributing countries and bringing advanced militaries back into peacekeeping. In September, President Obama convened a historic high-level summit, the first of its kind, at the UN to rally new commitments to peacekeeping, marking the culmination of a year-long effort initiated by Vice President Biden at the previous UN General Assembly. 49 countries participated and pledged nearly 50,000 additional troops and police. Not only that, more of these troops will now come from advanced militaries who bring with them equipment and expertise that is critically needed on the ground. We saw this in Mali in January this year when Dutch attack helicopters helped Bangladeshi infantry repel rebels who had opened fire on their camp where civilians were taking refuge. The United States is making contributions in this respect as well as one part of our unrivaled contribution to global peace and security, looking specifically for ways to leverage our military's unique capabilities to support peacekeeping operations, including by enabling faster deployment by others. Third, we are working to ensure a higher standard of performance and conduct once peacekeeping contingents are deployed, specifically in two critical areas, the complete fulfillment of their mandates and the combating of sexual exploitation and abuse. The additional troops generated by pres the President's September summit will prove invaluable to both goals by allowing the UN to be more selective as to which troops it deploys and now giving it the leverage to repatriate poorly performing troops and police when necessary and especially, of course, in instances where there are credible allegations of sexual abuse. With respect to mandate, when peacekeepers deploy in volatile situations, they have to be prepared to use force to defend themselves, to protect civilians, and to otherwise carry out their mandated tasks. Too often in the past, peacekeepers have shied away, even when atrocities are being perpetrated. A report by the UN's Internal Oversight Office in March last year found that in 507 attacks against civilians from 2010 to 2013, peacekeepers virtually never used force to protect those coming under attack. Thousands of civilians likely lost their lives as a result. This cannot continue, and a growing number of leading troop contributors agree. The 50,000 additional troops and police should enable more capable, more willing troops and police to staff these missions. The same is true on sexual exploitation and violence, and, and let me just state the obvious here. We share the outrage of everyone on this committee, and all the American people who are focused on this issue. Peacekeepers must not abuse, abuse civilians. Uh, sexual abuse and exploitation have no place, it goes without saying again, in any society. It is especially abhorrent when committed by those who take advantage of the trust that communities are placing in the United Nations, and those responsible must be held accountable. Addressing this scourge will require continuing the important efforts begun by Secretary General Ban Ki-moon to strengthen the implementation of a zero tolerance policy, including bolstering reporting and accountability measures and pledging to set up an immediate response team to investigate certain cases. It will also require more vigilance and follow through from troop contributing countries. There must also be far more transparency in these investigations to track cases and ensure that justice is served. The UN should be able to take advantage now of this newly expanded pool of soldiers and police 
by suspending from peacekeeping any country that does not take seriously the responsibility to investigate and, if necessary, prosecute credible allegations. The fourth and final priority, Mr. Chairman, is to press for bold institutional reforms within the UN itself. We have seen the UN Secretariat make profound changes to peacekeeping from improved logistics and sustainment to a more comprehensive approach to crisis situation that integrates military, police, and civilian tools. But much, much more needs to be done. And we have spearheaded efforts to enact further reforms, including longer troop rotations to preserve institutional memory, penalties for troops who show up without the necessary equipment to perform their duties. And we will uh, continue to work aggressively to cut costs. The UN has already, uh, thanks to US leadership, cut the per peacekeeper cost by roughly 17% since 2008. We are also working to advance the reforms proposed by the Secretary General's high-level independent panel on UN peace operations, which are intended to address inadequate planning, slow troop deployment, uneven mission leadership, breakdowns in command and control, and a current set of rules around human resources and procurement designed for the conference rooms of New York and not the streets of Bangui. Let me conclude. In all of the areas I've just described, we've seen improvements, and the United States has played an instrumental role in making them possible. But there is much more to be done. We are not satisfied with peacekeepers fulfilling only parts, but not all of their mandates, with peacekeepers standing up to protect civilians in some, but not all, situations, or with soldiers being held accountable for crimes or misconduct, some, but not all of the time. The role played by peacekeepers today is too important for the sake of our own interests and security, as well as the millions of innocent people around the world whose lives may depend on peacekeepers, we will continue working to strengthen peacekeeping so that it is tailored for the 21st century threats uh, peacekeepers face. We appreciate your interest and support and continued dialogue on these matters. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for those comments. Um, uh, Senator Isaacson and I were in Darfur years ago, and. Uh, just infuriated by the caveats that the UN peacekeepers had. Uh, they could only fire at people when they were fired upon. You had women going out collecting wood from their villages, being raped, uh, abused, people being murdered by the Janjaweed, and yet uh, those caveats existed. So we've evolved, as you mentioned. This is not our father's peacekeeping mission anymore. As we've evolved these missions, though, and people now are placing themselves as peacekeepers more in the center of conflict, in some cases taking sides, how has this changed uh, the way the UN is viewed in these peacekeeping missions? I assume you believe this is in our national interest for us to be in this, uh, you know, certainly I do. But how has this changed the way these blue hats are viewed uh, in these areas? Uh, thank you. Uh Senator Corker, it's an excellent question. I think one of the lines that the UN struggles to, work, to walk is that it has, on the one hand, peacekeepers that are charged with an aggressive uh, enforcement of mandates which entail protecting civilians, not just protecting peacekeepers themselves, as was once the case. Uh, you have that on the one hand, then you have UN country programs that often look indistinguishable. They're all driving around in white vehicles, uh, without, unarmed, passing out food, providing shelter, trying to uh, provide uh, counseling to those who've been uh, victimized by sexual abuse. So it's, it's been challenging, the blurring uh, of functions across these missions. Uh, but the only thing worse than confronting that challenge of uh, having people in society distinguish who does what 
is actually having people in these societies rely on peacekeepers, know that the mandate says protect civilians, and have those peacekeepers bunkered and more interested again in, in um, necessarily in collecting a paycheck and then going home than actually being out and about and, and delivering on the promise of that blue flag. So again, it varies per conflict area. I think we've, we've come a long way, but as I noted, the statistics are not inspiring. I mean, there are still many uh, troop contributing countries who send their troops in without the very strict guidance that you will be sent home if you don't enforce the mandate you're given. Yeah, yeah as I understand it, I know, uh, appreciate the comment Senator Cardin made about the cost. But as I understand it, for some of these countries, uh, uh, even though the cost to us is far less than having U.S. soldiers there, it's still the pay for these soldiers is far greater than uh, they would otherwise receive in their own countries. And actually that money, I guess, goes to the countries. And so they're benefiting financially, these countries, and sending troops there. Is that correct? Uh, in some cases, in some of the lower income countries. And is that feeding this situation of actually having troops there that are not, if you will, carrying out their mandates in an appropriate way, not qualified, not equipped? Talk to us a little bit about what is driving uh, having folks within the peacekeeping missions that are, that are certainly not conducting themselves in a professional manner. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Again, it reflects uh, a real understanding of the, of the dynamics in some of these missions. Um, again, it, it, the, the performance is uneven, the motivation is uneven, the incentives for troops is uneven. If you take, for instance, Rwandan peacekeepers who do get uh, uh, a more substantial stipend by serving in peacekeeping missions than they might if they were at home, but they are totally driven by what happened uh, in their country 21 years ago and actually view protecting civilians as uh, a way of showing the world what should have been done when the genocide unfold unfolded in Rwanda. Contrast that with other troops, again, who uh, institutionally are not given the guidance from capital that they need to be out and about, uh, that, that yes, uh, there are risks entailed with patrolling, um, but there are risks also that are entailed by, uh, by being bunkered. I think uh, on the question, the very specific question of the stipend, as, as Senator Cardin said, this is a very good deal for the American taxpayer. These are extremely difficult environments, uh, not only because of the risks of militia and, and government forces um, targeting uh, peacekeeping, uh, peacekeepers as they're out and about, uh, but also just the conditions in terms of logistics, access to water. Uh, I mean, these are uh, missions that are, um, not expending resources in the manner that our, our missions do when they when the de they deploy internationally. The logistic tail is not nearly as fulsome. Uh, so I think it's important to incentivize their participation. Uh, some countries are doing it because they're able, again, to uh, secure additional resources that they are investing in ways that sometimes we don't have full visibility into, sometimes in professionalizing their militaries, sometimes uh, in, in other par parts of their government. Uh, but I think Senator Cardin's point is, is, is very, very important. We are getting a lot out of the 100,000 plus troops who are active in these conflict areas. These are places where in some instance, if you look at Mali or Lebanon, places that are really cutting edge uh, theaters in terms of uh, terrorism and extremism. And if it weren't UN peacekeepers who were there putting their lives at risk, it may come to the United States at some point in order for us to advance our security. Mm -hmm. As it relates to the issues of the abuse that's taking place that is obviously abhorrent. Um, you know, look, I, in fairness, I think people on both sides of the aisle have 
concerns about the UN's ability to actually put reforms in place. I mean, we understand how the UN operates, and I know you talked about uh, the leader's desire to, to, to create reforms. We, we sent a letter suggesting that we have on-site court-martials um, by the countries that, by the way, these, these particular soldiers actually report ultimately to, not by the UN itself. Um, we also made some other suggestions. What, what is your sense that those types of reforms can, can be implemented relative to peacekeeping? Um, well, as uh, Ambassador Negroponte uh, behind me, I think, will we'll attest, uh, through the life of the UN, you have a challenge always on reform in the sense that there are two places you have to secure will and follow through. The first is with the countries that comprise the UN, so every troop contributing country to peacekeeping has to be prepared to look at the kinds of ideas that you put in your letter that we've been pushing in New York and implement in, the, in their own military uh, changes to ensure follow through, oversight in the first instance, follow through on uh, investigation and accountability, whether a court martial or some kind of prosecution in a civilian court. And again, there's probably no one size fits all solution because every country has its own uh, set of procedures, uh, again, for following up on abuse of any kind. Then there's the UN itself, which has to be much more aggressive in shining a spotlight on those countries that are not taking the steps that are needed. I think that we've seen, you know, uh, improvements. And I mean, this is again not something one should should uh, cite as an improvement. It should never have been the case that it was otherwise. Uh, but where those individuals who are alleged to be involved in sexual abuse now are not being paid by the UN, uh, they are being recalled to their capital. Uh, training and vetting now is changing so that there is training on uh, preventing sexual abuse uh, and exploitation. You had an idea, I believe, in your letter about. Um, a claims kind of commission. I think the UN is looking at creating a victim support trust fund, which is something, of course, we would wish to, to support as well. It's going to require going back to member states and getting resources to put into that, but maybe some of the doc pay of those uh, against whom there are allegations could be used uh, in service of such a fund. And then I think having more aggressive on-site investigative capacity so that less time passes between an allegation and an actual follow-through. Lastly, the two aspects of reform come together. Uh, in order uh, to secure reform, uh, meaningful reform, that actually matters for potential victims or people who've already been victimized, um, there has to be more transparency between what's actually going on in the field and then what we're made aware of in New York. Too often we hear from NGOs or from journalists about sexual abuse and exploitation rather, from, rather than from the UN itself. And if we are to go to a developing country and try to enhance their capacity, uh, their training on the, on the front end, but their capacity to investigate on the back end of an allegation, we have to know who's been accused of doing what at what period and be in a position to, to offer support. If there are countries who are shirking their obligation to carry out investigations, we have to know so that we can look at our bilateral leverage and whether we might suspend some forms of assistance if in fact there's a recurrent pattern of, of not actually taking seriously the zero tolerance policy. Well, thank you. My time is up and as a courtesy, I want to move on. I do hope uh, through questioning at some point, I know the president has made additional pledges uh, to the UN beyond our uh, normal peacekeeping budgeting and I hope at some point uh, it'll come to light as to where those resources are planned to come from. But thank you again for being here, Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Ambassador Power, for your service to our country. Uh, I, I want to, as I said in my opening statement, I'm a strong supporter of the 
mission of the United Nations and the incredible progress it has made in global issues. I want to talk about transparency and accountability. It's come up quite a bit on several subjects. One of the, I think, clearest ways to try to help the safety of civilians is to hold President Assad of Syria accountable for violating international war crime type activities. So do we have your commitment as our ambassador in the United Nations that we will seek full accountability by President Assad for the war crimes that he has committed in any of these negotiations that take place in regards to the resolution of Syria? Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, well, let me say that uh, one of my more un unsuccessful days in my office since this uh, body was good enough to confirm me for my job was pursuing a referral of the crimes, the war crimes and crimes against humanity carried out in Syria to the International Criminal Court. That was a resolution we brought to the UN Security Council, notwithstanding our own uh, non-participation in the ICC. We believe that that is a venue uh, that should be looking at chemical weapons attacks and barrel bombs attacks and systematic torture. And of course, that effort at a, a, a referral uh, was vetoed by Russia and, and a veto supported by China. But um, I do understand there's going to be negotiations that will involve the United States. And the United States is going to have to sign off on those negotiations. Do I have your commitment that the, your position at the United Nations will uh, be to hold President Assad accountable uh, for the type of activities you just described? The ultimate settlement in Syria is going to be between the opposition and uh, the Syrian government. We, the United States position on accountability, I hope, is well known. We are absolutely uh, supportive and have been aggressively supportive in building an evidentiary base uh, so as to ensure that Assad and other people responsible for war crimes are held accountable. The, it's, not, the precise it's, not to, it's not up to the government and opposition to determine whether a person has violated international standards on uh, conduct of war. War crimes are, are global. It's a global accountability. I think there are two separate issues. One is what is the standard or the threshold question for what forms of account for where accountability uh, should be provided or whether prosecution or a truth commission, the whole set of tactical questions about how account accountability should be pursued. Um, there's a related overlapping uh, question of what the terms of a political settlement would be. I mean, this this is not something that is on the verge of happening, so I think the details on accountability have not yet been fleshed out, and it's something we should, we should consult well, on, I, but, but I wanna underscore the, the, the final agreement has to be something that both the opposition and the government uh, can, can get behind. I understand that, that doesn't quite answer my question. Let me make my position clear, and I think the members of the, this committee, if President Assad is not held accountable, there will not be support for any solution in regards to Syria. I'll just make that pretty clear from the beginning. Let me talk to issue number two on transparency and accountability. My, the chairman has already talked about that, is the abuse allegations. If this is not done in an open manner, where there is complete understanding and disclosure of what is taking place, uh, the, the confidence factor of those responsible for these abuses being held accountable will not be there. Um, I, I agree completely. I mean, I'm not sure what, 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 what to add. The, as I said, there has been insufficient uh, reporting back to the Security Council. 
we have now uh, taken sexual abuse uh, and exploitation and made it an issue to be discussed in the Security Council. The Secretary General has now committed to reporting back. And, and I've seen this specific recommendation, and they're good, but you've got to follow through on it. It's got to be done in a way that the international community, the activists, those who are uh, following this can be confident that those that are responsible have truly been held accountable so that this will not happen in the future, will not be tolerated in the future. You said zero tolerance, which we agree. That's, I think, the important point, that it's not just a closed investigation, but that we have an open closure of this issue and a commitment on how to go forward, these matters will be handled. No, I think right now, Senator, it's very fair to say that victims who come forward uh, do so at their own peril and don't do so with confidence that having taken that risk, having potentially ostracized themselves in their own communities, that there's even going to be accountability on the back end. And that has to change uh, entirely. I suspect if it does change, you may well see more people coming forward. So let me get to my third point on transparency and accountability, and that is the budget system at the United Nations. It's anything but open and clear and transparent. That's nothing new. It's been that way for a long time. It's hard for me to understand why our assessment on the peacekeeping is 28.36%, if I'm correct, which is almost three times higher than the next country and is significantly higher than our general allocation for the UN budget. That doesn't seem to me to be a transparent way to budget. So uh, can you just briefly inform us as to the U.S. position in regards to a fair allocation of the U.N. budget in an open, transparent manner? Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, the formula on which the U.S. share of the peacekeeping budget is, uh, is, is, a, is a very complex formula. Let me say in brief uh, that it's some combination of our share of the global economy plus a premium that we pay by being a permanent member of the Security Council and getting, particularly with the veto, getting to dictate whether uh, a mission comes into existence or whether it doesn't, along with our, the other permanent members and uh, in, as a whole, in, along with the rest of the Security Council. So we pay a premium for being a permanent member. Uh, we were able to secure uh, the cap on our regular budget. The formula would actually have us pay at a higher rate if not for the 22% cap. Uh, that Ambassador Holbrook uh, secured um, now going on f 15 years ago. Um, the one thing I want to stress is that our emphasis is on ensuring that countries that are contributing more and more to the global economy are paying more of their share. And we're in the midst of uh, scales negotiations now on our share of the peacekeeping budget. Uh, our uh, emphasis, again, has been on ensuring countries that who's, you, you can see their economic growth, but you don't see a correlation in terms of their contribution. We already, uh, the Chinese contribution to peacekeeping has more than doubled in the last um, 10 years, and I think we can anticipate that the Chinese share is going to be up around 10%, which would be a tripling of its share. Similarly, the Russian contribution has doubled. Again, China and Russia being two of the, the, the five permanent members well, we on the council, point so out having that, to pay that uh, premium. China is still about, what, one-fourth of the United States, well, less than one-fourth, and Russia is, well, one, about one-eighth of the United States. So it's, uh, uh, it just seems to us that the 22% cap, we understand that. And we, uh, that was well-deserved, well, uh, the way that w w came out. It looks like that the United Nations is equalizing through the peacekeeping okay. percentage uh, and that the 22% cap is being violated because of our higher contributions to the peacekeeping efforts. Uh, just, so I just urge you that 
the more transparent this process, the better it's going to be, I think, received politically in our country. And uh, we do think the 22 percent is a fair number. And uh, we think it should be honored and it should be honored in the peacekeeping. I just want to underscore the, the when the um, agreement was secured on the 22 percent cap, uh, no similar agreement was secured as it related to peacekeeping. In fact, the the having the 22 percent cap actually helps us in the peacekeeping realm uh, because 22 percent becomes the baseline on which these uh, premiums are uh, agreed to. Uh, we I want to stress we are we share the same objective. Uh, we want to get other countries to step up and pay their share. We still believe that if you look again at what this means for U.S. national security, I think this is again a version of the argument you made at the beginning, that having uh, the, uh, and even when you compare it to NATO, where the United States bears the lion's share of defense investments, um, that having the rest of the world paying 72% uh, of the, the peacekeeping budget is a, a good deal for the American taxpayer. And my last point, and I, I, I hope this will be covered, as the chairman said, by others, the safety of civilians critically important. You stressed the increased number of commitment made in the meeting in September. It seems to me it's not a matter of numbers of, of that personnel. Do they have the will to go in and stand in front of civilians to protect them? And we haven't seen that. So I'm not sure I was comforted by your reply that we have greater capacity by number. If we don't have greater capacity by will, it's the civilian population is going to be at great risk. If I may, uh, Senator, just respond briefly. Um, the, the point that I emphasized in my testimony was we have succeeded now in getting contributions or commitments, I should say, not yet contributions from advanced militaries. Europe had gotten out of peacekeeping by and large over the course of the last 20 years. Um, and we think it's really important that they get back in. There is no necessary correlation always between being an advanced military and being and having the political will to, to put yourself in harm's way to protect civilians. Uh, but we think that, again, giving the UN the choice, now it has a pool from which it can choose. And if there are people who show insufficient will and want to spend more time in their bases than out and about protecting civilians, we think having this pool of forces, which include, again, more professional and advanced militaries and, and better aviation uh, and engineering and infantry capabilities, uh, giving the UN that selectivity is going to mean over time that the, that the uh, performance of these peacekeepers is, is going to improve. So numbers alone don't mean anything if you have 50,000 commitments of people who don't have political will, but we see in that pool actually uh, substantial commitments from those we think do have that will. Before turning to Senator Purdue, I, I just want to thank the ranking member for bringing up an issue that is brought up uh, consistently, uh, certainly on our side of the aisle also, and I want to thank him for that. I, I do want to just you know, emphasize that with NATO, which I know is not within your jurisdiction, we have become the provider of security services, and our NATO allies, the generally speaking, the consumer of security services. And, I, it, you know, the same thing is happening with the peacekeeping at the UN. I know it's a different set of actors. But the very people that stymie our efforts to enforce, uh, China, for instance, uh, is taking advantage of us. So, yes, it is in our U.S. national interest that we have peacekeeping missions and that we have stability and security around the world. But I think we... Uh, continue to be not as good as we should be at forcing other nations to be responsible. So I want to thank uh, Senator Cardin for bringing this up. It is infuriating, infuriating 
uh, to have the lack of transparency that does exist at the UN, I think over time will erode, erode uh, support. It's already, you know, not particularly high because of the many issues that we see going unattended, like not dealing with the ballistic missiles that are being fired by Iran in violation of 1929. So I would just say I'm glad there's bipartisan concern. I hope that you can address it with that, Senator Perdue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me uh, also echo uh, that, too. Um, I want to compliment the uh, ranking member for continuing to bring this up. I, I wanted to talk about that just a, a second. Right now, uh, we're spending uh, about $2 billion just in the peacekeeping force in the United, uh, United States. I think that's our contribution. Because of the assessment uh, disagreement, we're some $345 million in arrears, I think, in terms of uh, what the UN says we owe them. I'd like to point out also, Mr. Chairman, that uh, it's not just the percentages here in relation to the size of the GDP. It's also, I think, should be uh, taken into account the percentage of GDPs in these countries that are spent on their own military. That also bears to, to the global security uh, situation. So I think given the situation we have in the U.S., Madam Ambassador, that, that you know, in the last few years, 35 to 40 percent of what we've been spending is borrowed, uh, I think this is a very timely time to have that really serious conversation in the U.N. I applaud you guys for doing that. I have two quick questions. First, I want to thank you um, for what you're doing. Um, given your high school years in Georgia, we, uh, we claim you, and we're proud of what you're doing. Um, so I, I want to talk about Hezbollah, and I want to talk about Lebanon in just a minute. You know, in 78, UNIFIL was created there. It's the interim force in Lebanon. Uh, some 12,000 troops are there. Uh, the UN Resolution 1701 in 2006 strengthened the mandate there to monitor and to preclude uh, uh, the illegal transport of uh, weapons into uh, Lebanon. And yet, we know today they have an estimated 120,000, 150,000 rockets, some of these very sophisticated guided weapons. Uh, it's very troubling. So it looks to me like that if that mandate were uh, directed to keep weapons out of Lebanon, that, it's, that they're failing against that uh, mandate. Can you talk a little bit about their current role there and the fact that 1701, what's their, what's their role against 1701? And then are, we've had reports that uh, you know, there have been threats around repri reprisals if they report violations and so forth. What can we do to strengthen UNIFIL there and, and to um, preclude Lebanon from the illegal um, transport of uh, these dangerous weapons? Uh, thank you. UNIFIL has, I think, played an ameliorative role since uh, 2006 in calming the situation, but uh, there's no question that Hezbollah has been able to maintain and expand an arsenal, and we um, have and continue to urge UNIFIL to be more aggressive uh, in patrolling, in monitoring, in speaking out uh, about violations of the UNIFIL uh, mandate. Um, and I think that what you've seen actually in over the in recent months is uh, more at least more transparency on the part of UNIFIL. I mean, part of the challenge here is, as as we know from confronting uh, terrorist organizations in other parts of the world, uh, when you have uh, when you when you are not at war at the, with those uh, terrorist organizations, you are using political pressure, particularly by Lebanon's own. Uh, sovereign institutions, which are themselves very weak, as we know from the current paralysis in Lebanon. Uh, you are shining a spotlight. You are uh, trying to ensure uh, interdiction of weapons before they even get into the theater in question. Um, so UNIFIL is not a perfect fix 
uh, for everything that ails Lebanon or for the threat posed by Hezbollah, but it has a responsibility to be vocal and uh, to take very seriously its reporting mandate, also so countries in the region, including our friends, uh, know uh, what is happening in, in an area from which uh, threats uh, have come uh, you know, uh, routinely uh, in, in, in recent decades. Also, let me just ask you to add a comment or two about in Syria, the UN Disengagement Observation Force, UNDOF, has actually withdrawn from the Golan on the Syrian side because of the, uh, the fighting there. Uh, can you speak to their role now, and, and how are they interacting with IDF in that? And I have one last question. For you. Uh, thank you. I mean, th th you're right that there's been a reconfiguration. This is something UNDAF has done in close consultation with the government of Israel, given the, the stakes here. It is uh, a response to the fact that al-Nusra uh, made advances, uh, you know, on, on one side of the line, uh, and we... Uh, right now, this is this actually kidnapped some of your some of the UN forces. They, for a exactly, weeks. Uh, Senator. They did, um, and uh, the, the the release of those forces had to be negotiated. And I will say, even that incident showed it's not the same as civilian protection, but an unevenness in how the different units responded, which again is life in the UN. Some ho holding onto their weapons, refusing to be cowed; others handing over their weapons, and unfortunately. Uh, in a manner that uh, left UNDOF uh, weaker and, and where those weapons had to be had to be replenished. But we, we again view this as a temporary relocation. We still believe the prior configuration is the stabilizing configuration. Um, and But I think the Israelis are well aware as well uh, that the circumstances uh, don't lend themselves to, to putting the, the, the uh, observers on the other side of the line. The last question I have with time remaining, uh, Ambassador, is uh, the chairman mentioned it, but <clears throat> the violations of Iran, we've been concerned since the JCPOA that Iran would violate our agreement uh, incrementally. They're violating the UN agreement, uh, not incrementally, but in a major way. The, these are resolution 1929 and 2231 with the launch in October, and then we have reports just in the last week or so of a second launch. What's the UN doing in relation to those uh, violations and the sanctions that back those up? Thank you, Senator. Yes, this is something that I've had occasion to, to, to talk to the chairman about, and um, it's, it's music to a UN ambassador's ears when Resolution 1929, Resolution 2231, just roll off the tongue of, of members of Congress. Uh, resolution 1929 was an incredibly, has been an incredibly important foundation to the international sanctions regime. Uh, the ballistic missile uh, launch uh, from October is a violation of 1929. As soon as we confirm the launch, we brought it uh, to the Security Council. Uh, uh, we now are going to be discussing it on Tuesday. The, the UN machinery, as always, works uh, slowly. Uh, the panel of experts is looking at it. We've provided all the information that we have on it. And, you know, in a way, the Security Council is an important venue for increasing the political costs on Iran when they violate Resolution 1929. I would note, of course, that the JCPOA is uh, aimed at dismantling Iran's nuclear weapons program so that the threat that Iran poses um, uh, in any aspect of its uh, military is, far, is, 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 is much diminished. The Security Council uh, sanctions body operates by consensus. This is something that over time benefits the United States, but on something like that, it means we have to convince all members of the committee also to support our desired designations or any, any further form of accountability. So what is the U.S. trying to move forward in terms of strengthening the sanctions? Well, we've got to get, it's just U.N. machinery, we're going to get the report back from the panel of experts, we'll discuss it in the committee, and then we'll look at, at what the right uh, tool is. 
I think it's very important also to look at the bilateral tools we have. We maintain sanctions, as you know, and will uh, even after implementation day on ballistic missiles, on counterterrorism, uh, on human rights. And I think we, many of the individuals involved in their ballistic missile program have already been sanctioned, as you well know, over the years. Uh, so trying to secure a nexus between this launch and any particular individual and entity is a challenge that we need to take on. But I think looking at the Security Council and our bilateral tools uh, as complementary is, is very important in this regard. Thank you. Thank you again for your service. Thank, Thank you, you, Senator. Thank you. I, I, you know, Senator Cardin and I both emphasized with the Security Council two days ago that, look, the, let's face it, the possible military dimensions, peace, we thought they might get a D minus. They got an F. Total hoax, total hoax. Uh, Non-action here uh, is just going to empower them to continue to violate. And I think what the ambassador just said is the UN's going to do nothing, nothing, because China and Russia will block that from occurring. So um, I do hope they're preparing their bilateral efforts. It's disappointing, but again, we provide the resources that we do, and yet we have countries uh, that will not cause other countries to live up their obligations and block that. So uh, very disappointing. Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Cardin, and um, thank you, Ambassador Power, for your a tireless and dedicated service, your advocacy for human rights, your leadership in representing us at the United Nations, and uh, your passion uh, for the difficult and demanding mission that you're carrying out on behalf of our nation. Uh, I share the concerns expressed uh, by many uh, colleagues about the active enforcement of the JCPOA and uh, ongoing work to enforce uh, UN Security Council resolutions. I was uh, pleased to hear there's an upcoming meeting of finance ministers around the UN Security Council and um, look forward to continuing to work closely with you and um, Secretary Liu and others in the administration to make sure that we are using all the tools we can to enforce the sanctions that remain in place uh, and to reimpose sanctions should um, Iranian behavior demonstrate the necessity of doing so. Um, I've had the opportunity to visit UN peacekeepers in the field in a number of countries uh, and have seen uh, both the positive uh, that they can accomplish in countries like Liberia uh, and in the DRC and some of the very real challenges, uh, particularly where, as you noted in your opening testimony, uh, there is a disconnect between the mission to protect civilians uh, and the training equipment, leadership, and uh, inclination or will to do so. Um, so start, if you would, by just uh, focusing on whether there's a mismatch between um, UN uh, Security Council mandates uh, and what troop contributor countries are really trained and uh, prepared to do. I was very encouraged uh, by the President's leadership in renewing a call to uh, more advanced militaries uh, to deliver not just uh, logistics and intelligence and supplies, but uh, trainers and troops. Um, how do we connect uh, the mandates, uh, the mission, and the capacity to deliver in the field? Thank you, Senator. Um, and let me come back, maybe if I could, just by way of response to something Senator Corker uh, mentioned before, uh, which is the, the contrast with NATO. Uh, I mean, this, I, I just want to underscore, this really is uh, an example where we have national security interests in peacekeepers, in troops from other countries performing ably. This is not a NATO situation where we are carrying uh, a disproportionate share of the troop burden. We're carrying uh, a large share of the financial burden, and that's something, again, we're working to uh, ensure is, is allocated more fairly. Um, I think on the mandate uh, troop contributor disconnect, which is real, and I think it's real across the board, um, the first thing you have to do is get more quality troops. It has been, as you know well, a supply-driven market. 
insofar as the UN basically goes begging bowl in hand to different countries. There's no you know standing army. Uh, uh, you know, uh, that exists in New York. The Secretary General um, uh, doesn't have anything at his disposal beyond which he can uh, extract uh, from UN member states. And uh, that process had yielded um, a very uneven uh, set of uh, troops and police to participate in these missions. Some who have uh, extensive military experience at home and we know are capable troops, but once they get in a peacekeeping setting, they don't fundamentally believe in the civilian protection mandate. They want to go back uh, to traditional principles of peacekeeping from the way peacekeeping uh, was done back in the, in, the, in the 70s and the 80s, and that's just not the world we're in. So I think the, the, the first answer is you increase the sophistication, the training, the professionalization of the troops, and there's going to be an effect on the ability to perform uh, the mandates. But the second uh, answer is on us as a permanent member of the Security Council, which is uh, there needs to be more prioritization in the way that these mandates are put in place. It's hard in the real world to prioritize because uh, you look at a situation like that in South Sudan uh, or that in Congo and, and what of the tasks that those peacekeepers are slated to perform uh, would you give up? You know, would you give up demobilization? Would you give up security sector reform? Would you give up human rights monitoring? Would you give up uh, attention to child soldiers or sexual violence? Of course not. And so uh, you need to make sure that the missions are right-sized. Uh, you need maybe to do some sequencing in terms of building out some of those capabilities over time. And uh, the UN country team and our own bilateral assistance also needs to be involved in strengthening state institutions. Because fundamentally, in so whether it's Central African Republic or Congo, Eastern Congo or, or South Sudan, your UN peacekeepers de facto are having to perform the work of states because the states themselves are so weak. And so, again, there's no panacea, and for all of the complaints that we have about, about UN peacekeeping, I, I would challenge all of us to imagine what any one of those uh, countries would be like without this, uh, uh, you know, s somewhat stabilizing presence, but it is not going to be a cure-all for as long as you have state institutions that don't function or leaders that are corrupt or uh, militia on the loose who are interested in, in carrying out horrors against their, their civilians. So. And I've seen exactly those challenges in the countries I've referenced, among others. So uh, I continue as an appropriator uh, to advocate uh, for funding peacekeeping uh, and for dealing with um, some of these challenges. So it's very encouraging to me to see your engagement and hard work on reform, uh, because for this to be cost-effective and yet reflect our values, uh, we need to make some real progress in the areas uh, around accountability and, and protection of civilians that you've referenced. Let me just ask uh, sort of a last question and then take what time you have left to answer. I'm concerned about sort of growing um, the universe of capable peacekeepers, both in Africa and globally. China made a pledge uh, of a standby force of 8,000 peacekeepers, and I'm interested in what you think is the future, where they will or won't be deployed, uh, what this commitment means. And I'm concerned about the African Union and APREP, uh, and would love to hear how you see that playing out going forward and how we can sustain that investment uh, in a continent-wide force. Thank you. Um well, uh, again, I just I, I want to stress how unusual President Obama's personal leadership on this has been, and he's basically uh, told us that anything he can do to ensure that these commitments are followed through on, he's prepared to invest his own time, and the Vice President the same. So this is 
we are, we are dealing with this set of challenges at a level that, that I don't think we've seen before and with a, with a degree of aggressiveness that we haven't seen before from the United States, notwithstanding the fact that, again, on a bipartisan basis, I think successive administrations has seen the, 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 the value of this tool in the, in the American and multilateral toolbox. Um, I think that on uh, APREP and the China uh, question kind of come together a little bit. We have a major issue in terms of the delay between the time a mandate is given a UN peacekeeping force and the time in which troops and police are deployed into theater. Uh, now again, some of this just goes back to the, the troop contributing countries and their ability to turn on a dime and train and get configured and get their equipment all lined up. Um, APREP is designed to take these six militaries, all of whom are uh, have a, a, a good record within peacekeeping of being aggressive in protecting civilians and being having the political will to go to dangerous places. And we aim to then ensure through deepening our provision of equipment and, and the particular forms of training we offer that they can get into the theater uh, more quickly than they have been up to this point. A lot of them lack their own ability to lift themselves, so sometimes we have to be involved, as we were in the Central African Republic for the Burundians and the Rwandans, mm -hmm. to swoop in and actually uh, carry people uh, in, into harm's way. Uh, but they, they need to acquire over time the lift and the self-sustainment and, and again, uh, this ability to, if not be formally on standby, to be ready to go when the, when the 911 comes. China's commitment of 8,000 troops is a, is, a, is a very large uh, piece of business and was a very significant announcement out of, the, of President Obama's uh, summit. Uh, I don't think we yet have a sense, nor does the UN, of how they imagine allocating that um, uh, set of forces over time. Uh, right now, they have just deployed their first infantry battalion ever, uh, and that is in South Sudan. Uh, the reports are, are quite promising in terms of how active those troops are out and about, but also protecting civilians in the displaced person camps. Um, so, you know, we need to, to, to look and see how the UN chooses to use uh, that, that commitment. Uh, rapid response, if that were something that China uh, could put on offer, where that you could actually lose less time between the time that the international community comes together with a consensus that a mandate is that a mission is needed and the time when troops show up, I mean, it took in South Sudan, you know, we're uh, two years after the original deployment, and they're still not at full troop strength, um, and and that's a recurring pattern across. So, so we we would welcome rapid response. Of course, we also need to make sure that any peacekeeper that deploys has the mindset where they're willing to to protect civilians and and put themselves at risk for the sake of the of the of the mandate. Thank you, Madam Ambassador. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman. Senator Gardner. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Madam Ambassador, for your time and testimony today. And of course, thank you as well for your service to this country. I want to follow up a little bit of what uh, Chairman Corker and uh, Senator Perdue were asking about, and that's Security Council Resolutions 1929 and 2231. Of course, we know there was a second ballistic missile test from Iran, which is a clear violation of these resolutions. Uh, after the first launch in October, we referred, as you said, uh, the matter to the United Nations. Uh, and uh, called on it to, quote, review this matter quickly and recommend appropriate action. On October 22nd, I believe you stated, and I quote, the United States will continue to, pr uh, to press the Security Council to respond effectively to any future violations of UN Security Council resolutions. Full and robust enforcement of all relevant UN measures is and will remain critical. So as of today, has the United Nations Security Council or the Sanctions Committee taken any action in response to the Iranian missile test? And I believe the answer is no. They're meeting Tuesday. Is that correct? 
Yeah, beyond having Security Council discussions of the matter, there's been no uh, follow-on action. And I mean, discussions are a form of UN action. It's, it's a little bit like a hearing is a form of uh, congressional action. Um, so, that, 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 you know, we've, we've had multiple discussions. Uh, the, the Tuesday meeting, could you describe the actions that will be taken at that Tuesday meeting? Uh, we will uh, hear back, well, we will actually not, probably not yet hear back from the panel of experts, but we will, uh, if we're in a position to confirm the recent launch, this is something that we would bring to the council. We're not yet in a position to confirm, but are looking to, to confirm those reports uh, if, if warranted. Um, and again, we'll get an update from the UN in terms of where, when the panel of experts report is gonna come back. And so this launch needs to be confirmed, but the last launch, we still haven't taken any action, action on the last launch. Again, right? we have taken action. Uh, in what are those actions? We uh, confirmed the violation, we brought it to the UN uh, Security Council, and we've launched, the panel of experts is investigating the matter, and we'll report back. So what other administration actions, what other actions has the administration taken in response to the missile test, other than taking it to a panel, talking about it, having a meeting? Uh, we're looking also, as I mentioned earlier, at the bilateral uh, sanctions tools that we have at our disposal. So that's something, again, that uh, the Treasury Department is following up on. What unilateral measures are we considering? Uh, I, I believe sanctions designations, uh, reckon, bearing in mind that, that most actors, I shouldn't say most, many of the actors involved in ballistic missile launches and in the program itself are already uh, sanctioned under U.S. law. And are we considering or stopped any sanctions relief from proceeding or rescinded any previous relief as a result of these actions? The uh, JCPOA, as you know, the, the uh, sanctions relief uh, associated with the JCPOA will not occur until after the initial steps have been taken uh, and the IAEA has verified that those initial nuclear-related steps are taken. But I want to underscore again that the uh, JCPOA, the point of the JCPOA is to dismantle Iran's nuclear weapons program, and that's a really important area of emphasis for us. So, uh, more important than the ballistic missile concerns? Uh, taking away, I don't, I don't want to talk about relative importance, but taking away Iran's, I think this is something actually all of us can agree upon, that actually ensuring that Iran doesn't develop a nuclear weapon is uh, a huge priority. For you the mentioned States. in your opening statement, you said, and I quote, exploit vacuum of authority. And I think you're referring to actors in the Middle East and other terrorists uh, that they're maybe trying to exploit a vacuum of authority. By not imposing sanctions, by not designating individuals, by not doing anything other than talking, aren't we allowing uh, exploitation of a vacuum of authority? authority? We, have, we have, this administration has put in place, um, in the case of the Iran sanctions regime, as you know, this body, the, the Congress in the first instance, and then uh, uh, amplified and extended by what we've done in, at the UN, the most devastating sanctions regime in the history of the 70 year history of the United Nations. So I don't think there's a, a void or a vacuum. Uh, Iran uh, has uh, seen the consequences of violating international norms. We also have a sanctions snapback provision that I think few uh, around the world would have thought that we could have secured as part of this deal, which would allow any single country uh, to snap back in the event of uh, su uh, significant noncompliance uh, with the deal. Uh, so sanctions is a really important tool. Uh, the sanctions that this Congress has put in place is one reason we're in the position we are now to ensure that Iran does not develop a nuclear weapon. But nothing has been done other than a meeting coming up on Tuesday with a panel of experts on a ballistic missile violation. By we, we have increased and will continue to increase the political cost to Iran when it violates UN Security Council resolution. Could you give and, me an example the, of that? Uh, the work that Iran does 
to try to ensure that the UN Security Council does not even discuss ballistic missile launches, I assure you is a testament to uh, actually the, the stigma that they still uh, associate, that they associate uh, with our bringing these issues before the Security Council. The same with the panel of experts actually discussing uh, this and, and, and documenting any, uh, any violation. This is, is, is something that um, uh, Iran, which, which of course wants to become a nation like any other nation within the UN, um, uh, they, they find it very frustrating that they continue to be scrutinized. They've never recognized, as you know, the UN Security Council resolutions, so that the fact that the council keeps functioning, keeps oversight, keeps the spotlight on, increases the political cost, uh, is, is, is an important step. Well, in October, this committee, many members of this committee sent a letter to the Secretary of State talking about Iran's October 10th ballistic missile. Uh, the letter talks about a range of unilateral, multilateral tools available to counter Iran's missile-related activities on multiple past occasions, imposed penalties under domestic authorities on foreign persons and entities engaged in proliferation activities, but we've done nothing. No, we've imposed no penalties under domestic authorities or on foreign persons and entities as a result of these two launches. Is that correct? Um, I, I, I want to just underscore the importance of the broader ballistic missile uh, defense efforts that we make. Uh, in, I feel like I've answered the question you've just posed several times. So let me, let me try a, a different um, uh, broadening approach, which is our response to Iranian ballistic missile launches is also a defense response. It's also the proliferation security initiative. It's everything that has come out of Camp David and our engagement with uh, the Gulf countries to ensure interoperability. Uh, it's the Iron Dome and, and all of the other bilateral uh, defense arrangements that we have with the country of Israel, many of which are getting deepened, uh, as you know. Uh, they've launched twice. The, is it working? Consultations. Is, is that working? If they've had two launches now, one in October, one recently, is it Being, I mean, one has to, uh, you know, if one is thinking in terms of regional defense, one has to uh, take measures in order to try to ensure that uh, our partners in the region have the tools to defend themselves. Even if you had a designation against someone involved in the ballistic missiles program, the number one deterrent and preventive measure is going to be uh, regional defense. And that is where our emphasis was. If, if I were here, and we had designated another actor bilaterally, let's say we find one that has not already been designated, uh, and designate, I don't think that that would address your concern about Iran's ballistic missiles program, nor should it. Uh, so uh, again, Iran has systematically ignored UN Security Council resolutions over the life of the entire International Security Council regime. Uh, the, the, the sanctions themselves were so crippling and brought us to the place that we could secure this deal because the other countries in the international system would be sanctioned if they were engaging with Iran in prohibited behavior. This, this the systematic ignoring of the, the, the resolutions, doesn't that give you concern about their willingness to comply going forward? With That's why we have snapback. That's why we have verification and monitoring on the ground. I mean, as the president said from the beginning, this is not an agreement predicated on trust, particularly in light of uh, Iran's past behavior. Past behavior, again, confirmed by the uh, IEA uh, PMD report. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Before going to Senator Kane, I, I just want to reiterate, I think, what Ben and I did the other day with you and the other members. I think regardless of how people may have voted on the agreement, we understand that it is what's governing our actions right now uh, with Iran. And I think on both sides of the aisle, regardless of how people voted, we want to make sure the agreement is implemented in the way that it was laid out. And I think there's been a concern on both sides of the aisle that there's an air of permissiveness that's being developed permissiveness, 
that's being developed that will cause the likelihood of any pushback over time to become less real. And I think that's what he's getting at, and I think uh, people on both sides of the aisle have been concerned about. 1929 says they shall not undertake any ballistic activity. Unfortunately, Japoa says is called upon, and I don't know whether they view that as permissive language, but this is an issue that, uh, that I think many people on both sides of the aisle are concerned about. I can't speak for everyone. And what we're seeing is, again, not very vigilant steps being taken, and it's setting a precedent for the future. With that, Senator King. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, uh, Ambassador Power. It, you gave an interview to the PBS NewsHour on December 4, and you noted that more progress needs to be made in uniting the anti-ISIL coalition. Would our unified resolve against ISIL be clear to our allies, to our troops, and to ISIL? if Congress was willing to finally debate and vote on this matter after 16 months of war? Yes, Senator, uh, thank you for your leadership on this uh, issue from the very uh, start. Uh, yeah, I think people are puzzled uh, as to why, given the priority, uh, people that I work with, I should say, day to day up at the UN, uh, are puzzled given the priority that the American people and on a bipartisan basis, you know, both houses of Congress attached to the anti-ISIL struggle um, and all of the uh, attention to it that, it, you know, has, has come uh, over the course of the last uh, two years as to how we can't arrive at some consensus in order to be able to enshrine in legislation uh, that which we say is true, which is, again, that this has uh, the bipartisan backing of, of the American people and, and of the Congress. So I think it's, it would be a, a really important signal if we could get that AUMF done. I have not done the research on this, but just from headlines in my memory, it strikes me that at least three of the UN Security Council nations, Britain, France, and I'm sad to say Russia, <laughs> have had their legislative bodies vote to confirm and approve after a debate their military activity uh, against terrorism in Syria and Iraq. Um, is that correct? Uh, that is my understanding as well. And I think other countries who are part of the coalition but not on the Security Council also we could add G to that. Germany, list. for example. Denmark, et cetera. Bundestag, uh, acted last week. Um, last week, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Senator McCain, said this. He did not say this approvingly, so I don't want to suggest that he was saying it approvingly, but when he was asked when an authorization vote would occur in Congress, he said, quote, it may require an attack on the United States of America, close quote. In terms of you being able to do your job well, would it be a good idea for Congress to wait that long? <laughs> um, uh, no, it would not be a good idea uh, for Congress to wait that long. I think um, it would this should be one issue that, that everyone in this country can agree upon, uh, even those who have differences over tactics, over uh, the number of trainers, or uh, you know, the, the, the different aspects of the, of the operations as they're unfolding. Everyone should agree uh, that defeating and degrading ISIL and showing the world uh, that this is something that is backed by the Congress, rendering these operations sustainable and enduring over what, you know, is a long struggle, um, uh, it, it would just be invaluable. The President started this uh, war against ISIL on August 8th, which was 16 months ago yesterday. A year ago, Friday, the only vote that's happened in Congress 
in terms of an authorization occurred in this committee December 11, 2014, an authorization that was reported out to the Senate floor and no action was taken on it. Um, the RAND Corporation issued a report to the Pentagon this week that said relying upon the 2001 and 2002 authorizations at a minimum involved um, legal gymnastics that were not helpful and urged Congress to take action. It, it is just my hope that we will do that, and it is my hope that it won't take a kind of cataclysm uh, that was suggested, again, disapprovingly by Senator McCain. I think Senator McCain views it the way I do, that he thinks Congress should act. Let me ask you this, moving to peacekeeping, a good news story. You talked about European nations having scaled back peacekeeping operations. A good news story for this committee and for this Congress is Colombia stepping up uh, in September and saying they wanted to devote uh, 5,000 troops to the UN peacekeeping mission. Colombia is also a peacekeeping participant in the multinational force and observers in the Sinai as of relatively recently. You know, we sometimes wonder whether U.S. engagement on a diplomatic way can make a difference. Colombia is an example of failed state to international security partner in a way that I think this committee in a bipartisan way can be proud. And also three administrations, the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, and the Obama administration have had a dedication to that. Talk about nations like Colombia who are coming into providing peacekeeping forces for the first time and, and the degree to which we can encourage that. Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, we view that commitment uh, in very much the same way. It seemed also a real reflection of, you know, however difficult the peace process is, and there's a lot of work left to do, uh, but their confidence that they're going to get where they need to get to be in a position to free up resources to be part of international peace and security. Um, Latin America has a huge contribution to make. One of the significant features of the President's Summit was a number of Latin American countries announcing that they're prepared to do peacekeeping out of hemisphere because a lot of Latin American countries had been uh, dedicating their forces in Haiti. I want to particularly uh, commend Uruguay because they've actually been taking the lead within the region at mobilizing different contributions, working with the Colombians, sort of saying this is how it worked for us, this is how it will work for you. I also want to commend Mexico, uh, which I visited recently, um, which has announced that it will break new ground and be involved in peacekeeping for the first time, uh, and it's in, in the midst of discussions now with the UN as to what form that will take. If I could just touch upon, because I, I think it's such an important point, the larger point they're pulling up from Latin America, which is the, the dividend for us when a country makes progress domestically, whether in terms of democratization uh, or in terms of conflict resolution. I just am back from Sri Lanka, uh, a, a place that in the wake of its defeat of the LTTE, the people who in effect you know, coined the suicide bomb, uh, really regressed in terms of creeping authoritarianism, horrible atrocities carried out in the tail end of the, in, uh, the war and no accountability for that. Now there's been a change in government. Not only do we see them uh, domestically uh, taking on issues of accountability, trying to work on reconciliation with the Tamil population, uh, but we also see them their behavior within international institutions transformed. Uh, also making a very substantial commitment to peacekeeping, uh, the stand they take on human rights resolutions, on Syria, on North Korea, et cetera, shifting. Uh, so I, 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 I want to just dwell on this point because sometimes one looks at the UN and it's just this black box where we're, we're not getting the returns that we want, we're not getting the votes that we want. The way the UN changes over time is countries that comprise it change. 
and you know, they become more at peace within themselves, they democratize, their institutions get stronger, and we see a payoff, again, in terms of the, the, the critical mass of countries then that we have as partners in New York to work with. Right now, it's still the case, though, that more than half the countries in the UN are not democratic. So that affects the extent to which the UN is gonna be a tool on democracy promotion or human rights enforcement, et cetera. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Um, the vote has gone off and Senator Isaacson is next. After him is Senator Menendez. Um, I would ask you, if you would, to chair the meeting while you're asking questions. I'm okay. gonna be very brief because I've gotta go to the floor too. So. Okay, okay. Uh, well then Senator Murphy is next after Menendez. If we would just keep it going I'll and then to I'm gonna bolt and come back and, uh, and thank you both very much. So you I know it'll be orderly Senator regardless. Senator Murphy after, after I finish? If Menendez is not back, Good. thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for your calling this hearing. And I'm going to be very brief because I have to do a part of this in just a minute on the floor. But you know, required reading, reading of every member of Congress and of every ambassador to the United Nations ought to be Samantha Power's book, The Problem from Hill. If that book had been read, a lot of the problems we're talking about today in peacekeeping missions and rape being used as a military tactic and things like that, we'd be a lot further along than we are today. That's a great book, and everybody should read it. Senator Corker and I went to Rwanda. Uh, we, 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 we know about the Kigali principle, and that's my first question to you. Are we, are we as a country, have we adopted the Kigali principle? Has the United States of America done that? Um, as you know, we're not a substantial contributor to peacekeeping, um, so uh, these principles so far have been embraced by, you know, the big countries are putting thousands of troops in harm's way. We have uh, 40 police officers and 40 military officers, all of whom uh, we're incredibly grateful for. So we haven't yet, but more for that reason than, than any substantive objection. But I can convey, if you, if you would support our joining, I can, I can convey that uh, back. Well, let me make my point. When I read your speech last night, <laughs> you didn't include this part in the speech, but it's in the printed speech, that you talked about the Kigali principles and what they were developed from, <clears throat> which was a learning lesson, I think, from your, what you pointed out in the problem from hell in your book. The rules of the Kigali principle, as I understand it, is that the peacekeepers need to, their countries need to affirm that their troops will have the authorization to use force when necessary and don't have to radio back to headquarters to get approval. Is that correct? Correct, sir. That's our problem in the Middle East right now in terms of the United States. I don't think we've got enough of that type of authorization for the rules of engagement of our own troops. And I, I commend you for raising it on this question. But I think it's a bigger question in terms of our being able to be effective, and that is to have the troops in the field that you have deployed, either for peacekeeping or for war, if you're at war, to have the actual authority for use of force they need to carry out their mission. It's kind of struck me that we were congratulating Sri Lanka and a lot of people, Korea and a lot of people who provide the peacekeeping troops, yet we as a country have very limited rules of engagement authorization right now as a practice in our own country. So that's my reason for bringing the point up. Um, if I may just respond briefly, Senator, while you're here, um, you know, my, my impression is, 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 not, uh, is not that. I, I, I think that what, what President Obama has uh, conveyed uh, to the Secretary of Defense and to the Chairman and to his uh, commander, and General, General Austin and the, and the uh, commanders on the ground, is a desire to, you know, offer strategic guidance, discuss, you know any big shifts in the strategy uh, uh, at a at a senior level. Make sure that we're uh, you know everybody's um, on the same page. But uh, there is uh, a huge amount of tactical and operational flexibility that these commanders have. 
Um, and I think you've seen, certainly, the President say publicly what he has also conveyed many times privately in the Situation Room, which is, you know, if, if there are ideas for how we can uh, pursue this campaign more expeditiously uh, in ways that, um, you know, uh, increase the security dividend for the American people sooner, I want to see those ideas. And, and so, I, I, you know, I, I'm, in, I'm in these meetings uh, where we're discussing the way ahead in our anti-ISIL uh, strategy, and I, I, again, have not heard uh, the, the commanders not getting the flexibility that they, that they seek. Thank you for your answer, and thank you for your service. And my last question is not a question, but a statement, and that is to thank you. Your wagon is loaded and gets a new load every day, and I think you're doing a, a terrific job. But I would underscore, as I leave, Senator Cardin's remarks and those of Senator Perttu and, and Senator uh, the Chairman. More transparency, the better for the U.N. The there's a lot of suspicion, there are a lot of misunderstandings, and there's a lot of lack of trust out there in the general public. The more transparency we can have, particularly on who's paying what and how, how they're paying their share, would be helpful to the U.N. mission having the support it really needs to carry out its intent from the beginning. Well, Senator, that gives me a chance uh, to invite you to New York so you can uh, get immersed in those budget numbers uh, for, first hand. But we, we would uh, really welcome uh, visits by, by members of this uh, this body, uh, and um, we'd give you a good, uh, a good and deep uh, tour up of the UN and, and so many of the Africa-related issues that you've worked so hard on. As you know, the UN is, uh, you know, on the front lines. Invitation accepted. Okay, great. Thank Senator you, Senator Murphy. Thank you, Senator Isaacson. Um, uh, good morning, uh, Ambassador Power. Um, the evening of the President's Sunday night speech, there was uh, a series of social media postings by. A really wonderful uh, reporter from the New York Times, uh, Rukmini Kalamachi, and she wrote a piece based on those observations the next day, and the title was U.S. Strategy Seeks to Avoid ISIS Prophecy. And the idea is that if you really understand the, um, the, the fundamentals, the building blocks of the pr religious perversion of ISIS, um, it, it is built upon a prophecy, a hope, a belief that ultimately they are going to be in a military contest on the ground with the United States and with Western powers. Um, and I suspect that um, that acknowledgement is part of what uh, made the president in that speech talk about not only the things we should do, but the things that we shouldn't do. Um, I understand we're not going to be putting UN peacekeepers on the ground inside a complicated, violent civil war anytime soon. But it, it, from a broader perspective, can you talk about, um, as we try to confront organizations that are in countries like Mali that have peacekeeping forces, that are trying to goad the West, and in particular the United States, into a military confrontation, why multinational and multi-ethnic forces um, are going to be perhaps best positioned, much better positioned than a majority U.S. force uh, to try to preserve peace and order. And maybe as part of that answer, talk about um, the contributions that majority Muslim nations make to peacekeeping or could or should make in the future if that is you know, amongst the reasons why we should be paying more attention to investment in peacekeeping. Thank you, Senator Murphy. It's a complex uh, question and, and set of ideas uh, within it. I, I, I think um, the, the key, a key uh, to um, effective deployments is legitimacy. And um, 
one of the things that multinational deployments can offer, but can also forfeit, uh, as we, we've been talking about in the context of sexual abuse, uh, is a perception of legitimacy, a perception that the whole world is behind uh, a peacekeeping mission. Um, you know, in truth, I think having a 65 nation coalition uh, also enhances legitimacy, and, this, and the fact that um, countries from the region are, are, are part of that against ISIL is, is, is very important, and it was something that was very important to the president to secure uh, you know, that kind of regional support. Um, the one thing that I would note in areas where uh, terrorists are active, and Mali now with 44 uh, deaths of peacekeepers um, just over the life of you know a mission that hasn't been in, has only been in place a few years uh, underscores is that there can be a mismatch between UN peacekeeping uh, and I mean, even even robust UN peacekeeping which we support and the Kigali principles uh, show that a lot of other troop contributing countries support and these kinds of environments where um, extremists and terrorists are, are, yes, they may make the United States their number one target if they have that opportunity, uh, but if, if there are no Americans around, they also are perfectly prepared to target Chadians and Dutch peacekeepers and Burkina Faso uh, peacekeepers. So I wanna, I wanna stress that this, I agree very much, I think, with the, the logic of the article that you've described and, and uh, found a very powerful um, uh, look at ISIL's ideology. Um, I, I just will use, though, the question as an occasion to alert the committee to how the extent to which peacekeeping is being increasingly seen as a soft target uh, for terrorists and extremists in those environments that they inhabit. And that's something we have a really uh, significant national interest in hardening these missions, in ensuring that they have the training they need to operate in these ever more, not, not only complex environments, because conflict is still going on, but complex because you combine conflict and the actual fact that the peacekeepers themselves uh, are a target. Um, and just to give you one example of how I think the Defense Department has been responsive in this regard, we're now doing more and more counter IED training for peacekeepers. I mean, talk about not your mother's peacekeeping. Uh, you know, if anybody would have imagined at the outset of peacekeeping that, you know, people would have to train against IEDs that were, uh, you know, presumably targeting uh, the peacekeepers themselves. I mean, I'm not sure peacekeeping would have ever gotten off the ground. So um, I think your larger point is right. Having, um, uh, you know, countries who know the language, I think that's a, a, a critical component that have cultural uh, uh, overlap with those countries in which they're operating is really important. The, the, the only other challenge is that sometimes countries can be too familiar with a country. And so if their immediate neighbors, one of the reasons the international community went to UN peacekeeping in the first place was to try to inject actually more distance so there'd be a greater perception of independence and there wouldn't, you know, one wouldn't be seen as being a stakeholder on one side or the other. So all of these factors, I think, need to be taken into account. Uh, well, uh, thank you. And let me add my thanks to uh, Senator Isaacson's for the number of heavy lifts that you undertake for us uh, every day uh, in New York. Uh, thank you for your time. And I'll turn it over to Senator Menendez. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. And uh, in uh, appreciation of uh, the chairman's uh, Courtesies, I'm not going to ask for unanimous consent for anything I'd want right now since I'm here alone. So let me, uh, let me uh, first of all, Ambassador, say uh, I appreciate your service to our country. Uh, and uh, I have a 
high regard for you, and I, uh, my own personal view is that left to your own devices, on some issues you might be more forward-leaning. Uh, you don't need to respond to that, it's just my observation. Uh, having said that, however, uh, let me uh, enlarge this conversation about peacekeeping, and I know some of my colleagues have broached this subject already. Peacekeeping is, yes, very important in the sense of what the core of this hearing is about, but part of the way in which you keep the peace is to make sure that the will of the international community is observed and that it isn't violated. So that, and if it is violated, that there are consequences so that hopefully a continuation of that breach doesn't lead to the outbreak of war and therefore uh, what flows from that. And so I, I want to come to the issue of Iran. I know several of my colleagues have pursued the, the core of the missile test, but first of all, I'd like to ask you, would you agree with me uh, that uh, for well over a decade, Iran, as you have said in response to some of my colleagues' questions, did not recognize U, uh, UN Security Council resolutions and moved their nuclear program forward to a point in which it got so big almost too big to fail in the, in the bank context? Well, this was too big to actually uh, end. So they violated the international will purposely, and in doing so, were able to get to a point uh, that they largely wanted. Would that be a fair observation? Um, yes, they, they violated international resolutions and built up their program. You know, again, uh, the I, I think this is probably not the venue to get into the extent of the program, but... No, not a little, well, that's, but, that's, but such that's, that well, that's pretty well documented. But yes. in any event, and, and, and on plenty of public discourse as well. So, but the point is, they violated international resolutions for Absolutely. the better part of a decade. Yes. And during those violations, they progressed for a good period of time without the type of sanctions regime that was largely, largely generated by the Congress, not by the executive branch. And so. Uh, I look at that and I look at your acknowledgement that they have not recognized Security Council resolutions. Um, and I say to myself, uh, there's a history here and a pattern. If you'd go visit the archives building with me over its mantle, it says what is past is prologue. Uh, and I have a real concern that what we have here is a lack of will by the United States and as a leader in this regard uh, by our partners uh, in going ahead and making sure that Iran understands that you cannot violate the international will without consequence, which I consider, even as I did not support the agreement, that to the extent that the agreement is going to produce any benefits, Iran must clearly understand that there will be consequences for not following that agreement. And the message it seems to me that we are sending and that we have sent as a country in various iterations is quite the contrary. Uh, so uh, we basically have no real action. I heard your responses about referring it to the committee and having discussions. I get the UN process. But the bottom line is there's been no real actions, no consequence. Now they have a second test. And we are talking about verifying, but at the end of the day, uh, it took place, and there'll be no real consequence. Uh, we would like to see the Security Council be the venue for a multilateral consequence, but we hear nothing uh, in the interim about an individual consequence. Uh, we see a set of circumstances in which I predicted, as well did a whole host of others, 
that on the question of Parchin, we were going to basically sweep this under the rug uh, and ultimately dismiss it, which is now the resolution that is presently uh, being circulated at the IAEA to close this chapter. Because we want something bad enough, we are willing to go ahead uh, and overlook, and in doing so, I think we make a grave mistake. We did that with Cuba because we wanted to create relationships with Cuba, even though they violated Security Council resolutions and shipped missiles and MiGs under tons of sugar to North Korea. Nothing happened to them. So when we want something bad enough, when I say we, the administration wants something bad enough, they are willing to overlook, and that is a dangerous proposition, a dangerous proposition. So. What is it that we are going to do to send a real, clear, unequivocal, unambiguous message to the Iranians? Because we were all assured here that notwithstanding the nuclear portfolio, that we could be robustly active and take actions on non-nuclear issues. Well, this is a non-nuclear issue. And conversations is not an action. Thank you, uh, Senator. Um, so let, let me, let me uh, use this also as an occasion since Senator Corker's back to, to sort of, he, he, to address a comment he made earlier which is in keeping with, with what you're saying, which is his impression of a kind of greater permissiveness uh, in terms of, and your, your uh, statement that somehow if you want it bad enough, you're willing to overlook, et cetera. Um, you know, the way that this administration and our predecessors responded in New York to prior recurrent, as it happens over the, 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 the life of the regime, violations of UN Security Council resolution hasn't changed. There's no difference in the way that we go through this procedure, what we seek to do in New York at the UN Security Council. And frankly, there's not even much difference in terms of the kinds of resistance we face from predictable quarters. Uh, the Security Council regime, as you well know, built out and force multiplied on uh, the sanctions that Congress put in place, um, and it is that regime that caused Iran to make a series of concessions that, you know, for I think the three of you here were not uh, uh, deemed satisfactory, but were, went well beyond what uh, would have been achievable uh, without the sanctions regime and gives us the confidence again that this is a good deal and one that will uh, dismantle Iran's nuclear weapons program. Um, well, well, the the objective not, we have- With all due respect, I'm not talking about the deal anymore. The, we're past that. No, we're talking about I'm implementation talking of about the deal. I'm talking about making sure that we have enforcement of security- Agreed, agreed. That are meaningful. So, but, but I, I, again, because you're both, uh, sort of, um, the accusation is that we are um, seeing things differently than you because we have a vested interest in seeing this deal implemented. We have a collective, as I think all of you agree, vested interest in seeing this de deal implemented because we don't want Iran to ever obtain a nuclear weapon. Uh, that is our objective. And we have put in place uh, measures, whether it's the expanded verification and monitoring, and even, even the PMD for all of the dissatisfaction that's been uh, expressed about the report and our approach to it, fundamentally the IE was able to get access to Parchin in a way that it, it hadn't been able to get in, in the past. We, the snapback of the sanctions regime 
is an incredibly important tool in our arsenal, and it is leveraged. Senator Corker said the other day to the Security Council that we've given it, we will have given up all our leverage on the front end. That is just not true. We will have that uh, hanging over uh, implementation, reporting of violations going forward, and we will have in our toolbox the bilateral sanctions measures uh, that uh, in, as a way of responding to lesser incidents of, of noncompliance and lesser violations. So again, the UN Security Council is one venue and we will do as we have been doing for a decade, which is call a spade a spade, bring forward uh, uh, violations, increase the political cost, ensure that Iran is isolated for its violations of 1929 now and 2231 uh, once implementation day uh, uh, progresses. But we also have a set of other tools aimed at getting at Iranian bad behavior, including oh, Mr. Chairman, if I may, ones on this body. Since my time has expired, let me just make a comment. I, you know, I, I appreciate your answer. You're very good at answering, but not answering. So let me just say that you talk about snapback. Those, those sanctions that you admit, and the administration has increasingly admitted, uh, brought Iran to the table, uh, they expire this coming year. And you all negotiated away, uh, at least as I read the agreement, the ability uh, uh, for the administration to support a reauthorization of it, which I intend to push for, uh, because you can't, the snapback means nothing if you can't back to snap back something that is meaningful. And so, and the administration just won't talk about that reauthorization because as I read the agreement, they're not, they don't have the wherewithal uh, to agree to a reauthorization, they gave it away. And then last, last point, you know, another example, enforcing Resolution 1701, the transfer of arms to Hezbollah. You know, during the review of the Iran nuclear agreement and defending the lifting of the UN arms embargo, the administration repeatedly emphasized that UN Security Council Resolution 1701 remains in place and that prevents the weapons, the transfer of weapons to Hezbollah. And we're going to make sure that that's the case. Well, since the announcement of the JCPOA, Hezbollah has continued to receive arms from uh, outside of Lebanon. Uh, so what steps have UNIFIL taken to stop the transfer of arms to Hezbollah? What step have we taken to stop those transfers? Um, thank you, Senator. I, I addressed this question earlier for, for Senator Perdue, um, uh, but it's a very important question. I think the, the point that was made over the course of the discussion about the JCPOA uh, is that authorities that this body was under, and we were understandably concerned, um, were going away or could go away at some point under the JCPOA, many of those authorities were elsewhere in other Security Council resolutions. So I think that was the invocation of 1701 in that, in that context. Look, as I said earlier, Hezbollah is a terrorist organization um, and uh, UNIFIL is a peacekeeping mission. UNIFIL's job is to do everything in its power to deter Hezbollah from amassing weapons, to call a spade a spade and to call them out when they are, um, to alert us uh, and other stakeholders to any, anything that comes to their attention that, again, is, a, is alarming in this regard. Uh, you know, as you know, over the life of UNIFIL, I think it has had a uh, and a, a constructive effect on events on the ground. I don't think uh, the government of Israel uh, would uh, support its perpetuation if it hadn't. But is it a panacea for, for Hezbollah? No, it isn't, and, and no, it won't be. I, I think that 
we have really pressed the UN to step up its reporting and to sound the alarm and to shine the spotlight and to do the things that it can do. Um, but, you know, in terms of armed confrontation with Hezbollah, that's not something uh, UNIFIL is pursuing. We're also trying to enhance the capabilities of troops who comprise UNIFIL, which is one of the stronger missions because of the European presence. And we're hopeful, again, that the Peacekeeper Summit that the President chaired will, will give us a broader pool of, of troops to draw from uh, so as to make sure that that mission is right-sized. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I, I just say that uh, no consequences yeah. is a green light to violations, and that's what I see us doing. Yeah. Thank Before you. I turn to Senator Markey, even while Senator Menendez is here, I, it is true that it's highly unlikely that the UN Security Council will take any actions relative to the violations of 1929. Is that correct? Um, again, we, we, are, we have already taken action. The answer is yes. We have already taken action. But, we have but, brought the issue to the council. But this I'm is talking about did. as far as sanctions, uh, penalties. There, I would not assess that, that Russia or China will go along. With I this. share your assessment okay. on Russia. Okay, and so let China's, me just say this: yeah. when you say that it's untrue what I said relative to that the United, that the administration was being more permissive in terms no, of sanctions no. violations, yeah. that was what well, I heard I you think say. It still, we'll see. Nothing's happened yet. What I said was that the leverage shifts to Iran. They are at breakneck speed dismantling so that they get the sanctions relief thereafter, which we would expect. Now people believe that in January or February they will get all of the sanctions relief thereafter. And for you to say that snapback is a real tool when it's contingent upon the countries that are participating implementing back those sanctions, and we have countries like Russia and China which probably, likely, we know, are not going to push back against this issue if there are incremental violations. All of the leverage is with Iran. That is a fact. It's, it's not incorrect. It is with Iran because there's no way that this administration is going to consider challenging an incremental violation because they know all Iran has to do is step out, and they know that Russia and China, and candidly probably our Western friends in Europe, are not really going to force them to comply. So it is a true statement, not an untrue statement, that the leverage ends up with them because they have what they want. We've given it up, and we have partners at the UN Security Council that are not going to cooperate with us. Senator Markey. My, let me just interject for one second, and I apologize to Senator Markey. I think a lot of us share that frustration. I would just urge us to work with our European allies on the timing of a response to the violation of the ballistic missiles. We all share the frustration that there is unlikely to be sanctioned action by the Security Council. But I do think we have... It, if we demonstrate action with our European partners, particularly in the P5, uh, I think it would be a signal to Iran that these types of activities aren't going to go unchallenged. Senator Markey, would you mind if I just respond very briefly? I'm so sorry. But just um, I want to underscore that when we went to the Council, uh, once we confirmed the violation on October 10th, uh, we did so with the United Kingdom, with France, and with Germany. And I think doing something like that, irrespective of what outcome we're able, what further tangible outcome we were able to secure from the Council is, is going to be very important and, and perhaps even broadening that. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I just, 
the, the, the one thing I, I, I feel compelled to say is that when you say they're going with breakneck speed to dismantle, uh, it's very important to remember that that's a good thing. That's what we want. <laughs> that breakneck speed, the dismantlement, that, that so understanding, again, that there is pay per, for performance as part of the deal, that the way that we have incentivized them moving forward and allowing the inspectors in, but sometimes in the way that this is discussed, yeah. you would think that that is, is not a good thing. That is a good thing. That is the point of the deal, is to get them to dismantle their no, program. No, I understand that. I understand they're dismantling uh, antique centrifuges, and we're allowing them to continue development of our twos, our fours, our sixes, our eights. I understand that. And uh, look, I, again, I don't want to re-debate the agreement. What I think we're focused on right now is that the international community knows that they violated 1929, and in essence, they're violating the spirit of JAPOA, where they're called upon not to do this, and we all know that the UN Security Council is not going to take action. That is what is important to us, because we believe that after they get the sanctions relief, after they dismantle these antiques, that they're using right now, these IR1s, that they're gonna push the envelope and that we believe that you and others there, by not taking even bilateral actions yet, um, are, are helping create a, an era of permissiveness. Even though we like you and respect you, we have a policy difference here. This is not directed at you, it's directed at the UN Security Council. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, thank you for all your great work, Ambassador. I know it's global and complex, but you uh, just serve our country so well. Thank you. Um, could we come back, if I, if we could, for a second, to Syria? Um, when I look at Assad, when I look at all of the, his supporters inside of the country, he has upwards of 30% of the army as Sunni soldiers who won't be viewed well when um, there is a peace agreement by the other Sunni soldiers that have been trying to depose Assad for all these years. And similarly, um, the Alawite soldiers who are fighting for him. So they'll be looking for protection uh, if there is a peace agreement. And I think Secretary Kerry and his entire team are doing a great job in moving us towards that. But there will have to be protection for these people uh, to avoid and to be, I think they'd be foolish not to anticipate this, what happened in Iraq, what happened in Libya, what happened in Egypt. So they're gonna be looking for protection and that kind of looks to the UN. It looks to these blue helmeted soldiers to come in and to give some level of guarantee that there will be protection for them if they lay down their guns. Uh, otherwise, I don't see a resolution of it. I, don't see, I just see a protracted war where no matter how hard you try to negotiate a uh, peaceful settlement, you just wind up with a, an ever-continuing conflict. So could you talk about that a little bit and what role uh, UN peacekeepers could play in a, a post-peace agreement, understanding that we're far from that, uh, but just looking at anticipating a potential role for the UN or some other multinational force uh, to move in and to uh, give some guarantees. Otherwise, I don't think Assad's ever leaving. Uh, <clears throat> I, you know, you just look at it from a 
perspective of human nature and looking at what's happened in all these other countries, uh, they'll be dead. They'll be killed. I mean, the revenge motivation is just going to be so high given the tragedy that's affected these other families. And then we have yet another cycle that we're participated in. So how could the UN or another multinational force play a, a constructive role? Well, you, you've, uh, there's, no, there's no shortage of very complex dimensions to imagining a political settlement for Syria, but you put your finger on, I think, uh, one of the hardest issues of all, um, which would be any notional reintegration of Syrian moderate opposition forces with uh, Syrian government uh, troops who have been, uh, whether I mean, the Air Force, which have been involved in barrel bombing and chemical weapons use, and or the infantry, and uh, I mean, there uh, it, it is going to be extremely difficult. I think that, and you, as you say, we're we're not at this point of the discussions, but um, in order for there to be an agreement on a political transition by mutual consent, which are the is the catchphrase from Geneva and is the operative principle for Vienna. Um, that is going to be one of the questions that both sides are asking because it cuts in the other direction as well when moderate opposition forces go back to their home communities from which they've been purged. What happens to them if the forces in control or, you know, remain, you know, in, in large, uh, you know, uh, go government forces? So where that confidence building comes from, um, who the guarantors are of any kind of reintegration, what, and this gets back to Senator Cardin's question earlier, what the accountability mechanism is whereby there can be some healing or you know, truth-telling and, and, and punishment for those who committed the worst uh, violations. All of those modalities have to be worked through. On both sides. On, bo on both sides, again, yes, uh, absolutely. Um, now, in terms of uh, the, the near term, uh, you know, we have a ISIL with a you know, very extensive presence in Syria that is shrinking, but nonetheless would be a significant consideration for any outside country thinking about deploying troops to Syria. We have Al-Qaeda's affiliate Nusra as well. Um, part of what is being worked through in Vienna, as, as you know, is definitions of who's a terrorist and who isn't, so that there can be, a, at a strategic level at least, an idea that everybody could go against these forces uh, together. But I think um, what you would need if you know, if one was going with a troop presence from the outside, uh, would you would have to make a judgment that a troop presence would do more good than harm? That would it, that it would uh, invite and create more confidence. To have that confidence, those uh, Alawites and and Sunni soldiers on the on the government side, and then uh, Sunni moderates on the other side, are going to have to believe that those troops are going to protect them if they get attacked. If you look at UN peacekeeping missions, this is the first part of the hearing, uh, that's not always the case around the world, right? That some troop contributors, that's not a role they play eagerly, even if that's part of the mandate. So then you could look at a regional force or a green-hatted force of some kind. You'd still ask that question, are troop contributors ready uh, to invest themselves in enforcing uh, this agreement? You know, is that something uh, that you know, some of our allies would be a part of. And the only caution I would give in terms of a regional force, which is something I think that is being uh, looked at, and again, all the costs and the benefits of all of these uh, permutations have to be thought through. Uh, on the one hand, you'd have the, the language, you'd have the cultural affinities, 
Uh, but in the case of many of the regional players, they have been stakeholders in this conflict. So the idea that they would be then seen as impartial. So finding a confidence building mechanism that doesn't run afoul of being seen to be a party to the conflict and where they'd be willing uh, to put their troops in harm's way on behalf of this agreement is gonna be one of the challenges uh, we have to think through if, uh, if the parties deem a f an outside force a necessary part of this uh, political agreement. Yeah, I don't, I don't see how you can avoid it. Uh, I just think that the recrimination coefficient is gonna be historically high. Uh, the, 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 the carnage has just been so great on both sides and the bitterness, the acrimony uh, won't settle out for decades and we need some mechanism as an intervention that allows for a period of reconciliation, of healing. And, uh, <clears throat> and I think in the absence of a very well thought out plan that um, is put together and I think it should be put together sooner rather than later just as a concept uh, that could move in to assuage the concerns that uh, all parties are going to have um, that uh, the removal of Assad doesn't lead ultimately to uh, a repetition syndrome breaking out inside of the country and yet a different cycle uh, that uh, seeks to uh, extract uh, a revenge against those who they have grievances. So, uh, so I just think the sooner we kind of think that through and what we're going to put in there, I think the better the conversations that we can have to give some assurances to the more responsible parties who might want to end this war, uh, that uh, the, um, the death toll isn't just going to continue to mount. So removing Assad is just one step. I think the next, I think, but it has to be accompanied by a set of guarantees that it's just not going to be mass carnage afterwards. But uh, I, I think I feel very good knowing that you're there and Secretary Kerry is there and thinking all these issues through. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for being with us. I think you can see that, uh, that we're getting close to the end here. Um, I, I do want to chase just for a moment, if I could, the conversation you had with uh, Senator Kane. I, I, I guess, uh, do your colleagues at the United Nations think that somehow uh, Congress and the American people uh, do not want to defeat ISIS? Uh, I don't think they would have that impression. Uh, the, my response was that they're puzzled as to why we can't come up with an authorization yeah. here or together. Are they puzzled by the fact that the administration has told us over and over and over again, here at this committee, Secretary Kerry, Secretary Carter, uh, uh, the White House uh, sending over notes that they have all the authorities they need to continue the fight against terrorism that was authorized in 01? Is that confusing to I them? I think, uh, again, we were, no, I was no, not sure. speaking, if I, if I may just, I wasn't speaking to the legal authorities question. I don't think anybody questions whether or not the United States has the authority to carry out the campaign that we're carrying out. I think the question is, as a political symbol uh, and as reinforcement of the effort that we're making, that there should be a, an ability to get consensus here. Yeah. Well, there there is consensus. I mean... The president uh, I, I'm sorry, has on, the uh, My response was on an AUMF well, it's, uh, it's, consensus it's on an AUMF. It's a little game that's being played that I'm, it's, it's difficult for me to understand. I mean, on one hand, uh, witness after witness after witness comes up here and tells us they have all the authorities they need, and then people like you and others come up and talk about how it would be nice. I, I guess I, I don't get it. Um, I voted for an authorization in 2013, helped craft it, 
to go against Assad, and uh, we turned away from that. So certainly this committee is willing to take up tough issues when a declaration of war is occurring. And, and has the president declared war on ISIS? Has he declared war on ISIS? Has he laid out a strategy publicly to defeat ISIS? So I just want to say, I, I'm sorry this cutesy that's been occurring recently, especially over the last two weeks, I'm, I'm having difficulty understanding when I agree with the administration. They have every authority that they need to defeat and destroy ISIS. Um, so I, I don't know what's up. Maybe the president's receiving criticism and he's trying to deflect that to Congress somehow. I don't know what's occurring, but all I can say with you, I'm in full agreement with the administration that the O-1 authorization, while certainly on the edges, gives them the authority to do everything they could possibly want to do to destroy ISIS. And I believe that everyone in the world, everyone in the world, understands that Congress wants to see that happen. Um, let me be clear. Uh, the president has himself, as you know, made clear that he has the authority to prosecute this uh, campaign effectively. Um, I was responding to Senator Kane's uh, comment that a number of the other countries in the coalition have gone through a domestic legislative process of late. They so didn't the have the authorities to do what they were doing? They through. didn't have the authorities. Is that correct? Uh, I, I'd have to go case by case, but and I'm not familiar with the domestic well, uh, legal well, machinations of these Britain countries. Well, certainly Great Britain's unwillingness. Yeah, I think in parliamentary systems, in they need to go through the, the exercise that they've gone through. I think this is a reason, though, that the question is a little bit more uh, in the air uh, than it has been over, over the last six months up in New York. I, I think it's in the air for... But the president has said he has the authorities he needs. Uh, th I don't, there's no... Uh, re yeah. resurrecting or surfacing this issue for any other reason. So you agree 100% that the president has the authority? Absolutely. He, has the president declared war on ISIS, by the way? Um, I, I believe he has said we are going to defeat and uh, destroy yeah. uh, ISIS. ISIL. Look, we thank you for being here today and, and uh, certainly respect the job that you have. You're very bright and intelligent. Sometimes I you know, take issue with you when I feel like you're carrying too much uh, the administration's line, but I understand uh, sometimes you feel compelled to do so. I thank you for being here, and we wish you well as you uh, take demonstrative action against 1929 being violated over the next week or so. Thank you. So our next panel uh, will consist of two more outstanding witnesses. The first witness is the Honorable John Negroponte, Vice Chairman of McClarty and Associates and former United States Permanent Representative to the U.S. Mission of the United Nations, the same job our, our former witness uh, is uh, occupying. Our second witness will be Dr. Bruce Jones, Vice President of the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institute. Uh, again, we thank Ambassador Power for being here. Both of you have witnessed uh, what just happened. We hope you can summarize your uh, thoughts in about five minutes, and we look forward to questions. Again, thank you for being here. And uh, John, why don't you start? Yes, yes sir. Th thank you, uh, Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking uh, Member Cardin. Uh, it's a pleasure to appear before you this morning to discuss uh, United Nations peacekeeping, a subject of importance to United States security. Uh, when I was ambassador to the United Nations, this subject was frequently 
uh, on the agenda of the UN Security Council and during my tenure, uh, their peacekeeping operations were stood up in uh, Sierra Leone and Liberia, among other countries, and of course, we also renewed a number of operations that continue to this day, such as in the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, Western Sahara, and so forth. I want to state categorically at the outset my conviction that United States support for UN peacekeeping operations is in the overwhelming national security interest of our country. There are three major reasons for which I hold this view. I call these three arguments first, cost, second, the uh, boots on the ground argument, and number three, legitimacy. I will explain each of these thoughts uh, further. Uh, first, with respect to cost, the United Nations has uh, more than 100,000 troops deployed in uh, peacekeeping operations around the world uh, today. The approximate cost of deploying these forces is uh, $8 billion per year, uh, which of course is a, uh, a, a, a small fraction of what we spend in our own uh, national defense uh, budget. Our share of these costs is less than $3 billion, uh, a small fraction again, and uh, some illustrious, uh, Ill illustrative figures were cited by uh, Senator Cardin, a small fraction of what it would cost to deploy United States forces on similar missions. This is not a trivial argument. In today's world and with the high cost of deploying U.S. forces to overseas missions, Clearly, it is an important advantage for us to know that we have considerably less expensive options available to us regarding whose forces might be available to carry out an intervention we deem to be in our interest. Second, the boots on the ground argument. This, of course, is an argument related to financial costs. Just as we benefit from the lower cost of UN peacekeeping budgets as compared to our own defense spending, we also do not deploy our own combat forces to these situations. This is a huge benefit. It is hard to imagine sustained public support for a hypothetical situation wherein U.S. combat units were deployed to five or ten uh, peacekeeping operations abroad. The cost in U.S. blood and treasure would be unacceptably high and the spotlight on the situations in which U.S. forces uh, were involved could undermine the kind of support and patience required in some of these very difficult situations. So support for UNPKOs saves us from having to contemplate these possibilities. It also enables us to think about choices other than a stark selection between boots on the, U.S. boots on the ground on the one hand or nothing at all. And third, Legitimacy. How many times have we undertaken or contemplated intervention without the legitimating imprimatur of a United Nations Security Council resolution? In early 2003, I was in the well of the Security Council arguing for a Chapter 7 uh, Security Council resolution permitting the use of force against Iraq. We failed to achieve that resolution and, and soon thereafter intervened in Iraq with a coalition of the willing. I'm not saying that a PKO would have been appropriate at that point in time in Iraq, but what I do want to highlight 
is that we subsequently paid a high domestic and international price for intervening in Iraq without the support and blessing of a UN Security Council uh, resolution. By definition, a UN peacekeeping operation has consensus support within the P5 and, a blessing, and the blessing of a Security Council resolution. This is an important political and legal advantage which should not be dismissed lightly. Senator Corker, ranker, Ranking Member Cardin, I know there are issues regarding the effectiveness, comportment, and leadership of some PKOs. And these are issues that will require continued attention and effort from troop contributing and other UN members alike. And given our leadership role in the world and our status as the UN, UN's largest single financial contributor, we have a special responsibility in this regard. But whatever imperfections or blemishes might exist in the UN peacekeeping setup, it is our responsibility to help address these issues in a constructive way. With steady engagement from the US and others, I foresee continued improvement in the performance and utility of PKOs and even their more creative use in addressing some of the very difficult security challenges around the globe. So thank you for the opportunity to appear before the committee on such an important topic. I'd be pleased to try and answer any questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Jones. Thank you very much, and Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, thank you for having me appear before this body, and thank you for your leadership in sustaining attention to this issue. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground, so I'll be brief and just try to raise a couple of points, reinforce a couple of points, and raise a couple of additional ones. I think this body well understands that the purpose of peacekeeping is to give the United States a tool for what I could describe as manning the outer perimeter, or for, for burden sharing in conflicts where we have interest, but we don't want to have to deploy U.S. forces or tackle the issue ourselves. I think that is well understood in this body. Uh, I think it's important to remember that in the majority of the cases where the U.N. is deployed, it's not deployed alone. Uh, it's often a regional organization and the U.N. co-deployed in a kind of hybrid operation. And I think we, we don't focus on that enough. Uh, the UN is an important part of the equation, but it's not the only part of the equation, and we need to sustain attention to the way that regional organizations uh, expand the reach of the UN and reinforce what the UN can do. That being said, of course, the UN, uh, as, as you both highlighted, as a burden-sharing tool, as a global burden-sharing tool, gives us the capacity to reach across the globe to get Indian troops to work with us in Central Africa or Brazilian troops to work with us in East Timor, as they did, or European forces working with us in Haiti that regional organizations uh, can't, can't perform. And so for all its flaws and weaknesses, the UN is the only genuinely global burden-sharing tool we have. And I think it's extremely important at a time when uh, Senator Murphy, I think, mentioned uh, Colombia, but there are others like Korea and Indonesia and Brazil, rising democracies who want to do more on the international stage. And the UN is the only tool that they have to do that. So how do we improve the UN's performance? Uh, I think of this as being having four dimensions, effectiveness, efficiency, legitimacy, and leadership. Effectiveness, I want to reinforce something that Ambassador Power said that I, I think is important, which is bringing countries with advanced military capabilities back into the UN. A number of you stressed the complexity of the challenges that the UN confronts. I think we have to be clear-eyed uh, about the fact that in a number of cases, the UN is operating in theaters where a transnational terrorist organization is also operating. Those are not challenges that can be met uh, by troops with low order capabilities. When we look at the situation in Mali, when we look at the situation in, in different contexts, we're gonna have to see peacekeeping have within it 
troops with uh, countries with advanced military capabilities to perform the functions of protection of civilians and implementation of mandates. So I'm very supportive of the administration efforts to bring uh, European and rising states um, back into peacekeeping. Uh, an additional point that I'd make, and again, Senator Murphy touched on it, is there are different ways that the UN can structure its missions. We tend to focus on blue helmet operations, which are commanded by the Secretariat. There is actually an alternative, which is multinational force operations, where a single member state takes the command. And that's sometimes an effective tool because there are member states like Canada and Australia and others who have a far higher degree of capability in command and control and intelligence than the UN Secretariat has at its disposal. And that, that variation of using a UN-authorized multinational force is something I think we should be thinking about more than we sometimes do. Quickly on efficiency, nobody would accuse the UN of being an efficient organization, uh, but it has made an important step forward with the creation of the Department of Field Support, which is a separate tool to structure and to manage the UN's field operations. Uh, the absurdity is that the politics of the General Assembly mean that the Department of Field Support still has to run all of its decisions past the Department of Management, which is the headquarters tool. So the same tool that manages workshops and conferences in New York has to approve all the decisions of a more nimble tool, the Department of Field Support. And I think one of the things the United States could do is work in a coalition to change that so that the Department of Field Support has more direct authority to oversee and implement uh, peacekeeping operations without that kind of extra layer of kind of a dual key system, which is inefficient. And of course, we have to keep working on the scale of assessments issue. Third, I would just reiterate the things that have been said on sexual exploitation. I think the UN makes a fundamental mistake when it doesn't recognize that even though this is an issue of a minority of troops and a minority of missions, it, it severely erodes the legitimacy of the UN on the ground and in capitals. Uh, you've all said a number of things already about uh, the United States putting the right kind of pressure on the UN to live up to a zero tolerance policy, which rather belatedly uh, Ban Ki-moon came to. Uh, and that goes to my last point, and I'll end here, which is, this is also about leadership. Uh, we're coming to the end of Ban Ki-moon's term, and I think it should be a matter of priority for the United States uh, when we get into the business of selecting a new Secretary General to be paying attention to the question of whether they are focused on the effectiveness and efficiency of the UN in contributing to international peace and security, and to work closely with uh, the Secretary General when uh, she or he is selected, and other members of the P5, to make sure that she has available to her the, a deep roster of political and organizational talent on which to draw in selecting top officials for the management of political and peacekeeping and humanitarian operations. I'll end there. Well, thank you both. I know we got off on a lot of different topics in the last panel that were a little different than the main subject, but it's rare we have the opportunity to, to talk to the ambassador. We thank you both. We know you're both friends. And uh, let me just, I, I, you know, obviously with just Ben and I here, even though this will all be part of the record, which is appreciated, this is more of a conversation. Um, as we have moved, I mean, you know, you both have experienced the frustration of uh, seen peacekeeping operations where people were being abused and brutalized and, and yet the caveats that existed kept peacekeepers from really being able to intervene. So we've moved in a more forward manner, which uh, from my standpoint is welcomed uh, as we've seen helpless people be brutalized in certain areas. What are though some of the challenges that uh, from your perspective uh, we most need to think about relative to that. I mean, in essence, it's an extension of, in some cases, uh, actually carrying out uh, semi-kinetic activities, right? So, so what are some of the things that we as a body ought to be thinking about as we progress down that path? 
thank you very much. It's an excellent question. Uh, and I think it's extremely well put. Um, it's interesting to observe at the UN, I think you face two challenges. One, over time, as uh, countries with more advanced capabilities, Europeans and others, have not been participating in peacekeeping. And the practice is sort of lowered to the capability of the troops. Um, and so the willingness to go out and, and undertake kinetic activities to protect civilians, to defeat rebel forces, et cetera, has diminished, and that's a challenge. Uh, so getting more capable troops back into peacekeeping is the necessary, uh, the first necessary step. I think an, an important question is what can the United States do to uh, stiffen their will or to ensure that they're going to have will or support? And, and one thing that I would put on the table is that, uh, by the way, I would say that I, I, I'm not among those who thinks that the United States has to put troops into peacekeeping to ensure that. I do not think that that is the correct approach. I think that the United States has uh, unique capabilities in airlift and intelligence and other kinds of things that are more important. And I would add to it uh, over the horizon extraction. If we're going to ask countries to put troops on the line and take risks, first of all, it's helpful if they're more capable troops because they're taking less risk by undertaking that mission. But if we're willing to provide over the horizon extraction and support, uh, and defense capabilities, the risk that they're taking is lessened. And so I think we can, we can be in a, a stronger position in encouraging people to take those risks and take those fights if we're willing to help them if they get stuck. If, if I could add, first of all, I would definitely agree with Dr. Jones that uh, capacity building, and I think that's what he was talking about in the first instance, is really one of the most important challenges, if not the most important challenge we face with respect to UN peacekeeping. Uh, there was also mention, uh, earlier in, in the testimony this morning about the problem, the, the time it takes sometimes to mobilize some of these missions. And I think this, the Security Council and the Peacekeeping Department has become more effective at that. I would add with respect to capacity building, the challenge we have in ensuring that there's a sort of a uniform form level of capacity amongst the officers uh, uh, that are leading these different missions around the world. And I'm not aware that the UN uh, has any kind of peacekeeping academy. And it would seem to me if you have a military deployments in excess of 100,000 uh, people around the world, I mean, we have, we have an academy for each of our four, four uh, uniformed uh, services uh, in the United States. I, and I wonder if uh, some kind of training institution where you would cycle current and potential leaders of future peacekeeping uh, missions, uh, whether that wouldn't be an idea worth consideration. I mean, one would have to sit down at the drawing boards and think about how you do that. But uh, anyway, that's one idea I'd like to leave for your consideration. Dr. Jones, you mentioned that uh, you don't think it's appropriate for the U.S. to have ground troops, if you will, involved. Um, you know, as it relates to our NATO efforts, we obviously have everything involved, uh, money, equipment, personnel. Uh, again, we're the provider of security services, and unfortunately, most of the members of NATO are consumers of security services. Here, uh, you know, we're, we're the largest provider of monetary resources, and uh, as I understand it, we've committed 42 officers um, uh, to be part of peacekeeping. but. Uh, just for the record, so that you tease out why it is you said what you just said, uh, you say we shouldn't be involved with ground troops because? 
Thank you. Yeah, and it comes up a lot. Uh, it's come up a lot in the last year as the administration has been pushing the Europeans and other states to do more. One of the responses has been, are, well, are you going to, right? And are you going to put, put troops in? Uh, and as I said, I think the, the, the things that only the United States can do include airlift, signals intelligence, and some of the command and control functions that you just referred to. Uh, I wouldn't be doctrinaire about it. I don't think there is no circumstance where the United States should put troops in. I, I would recall that we have actually historically in 1995, the United States had uh, troops under the command of a Canadian-led multinational force in Eastern Zaire. Uh, we have done it. Um, it's not impossible to do. But by and large, it seems to me that we are better off uh, uh, when other troops are willing to be in the front lines of this. Um, Senator Murphy talked about the notion of having multi-ethnic and multi, uh, multinational forces. The, 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 the simple reality is that the United States is going to attract attention. There are going to be a lot of people, want people who want to fight the United States, and I think we're simply raising a red flag to a bull when we put U.S. forces in the ground in a number of these situations, and we're much better, to, much better off performing those functions that only we can provide. Uh, as well as, as I mentioned, over the, over the horizon uh, uh, rescue and support operations uh, and ask others to be in the front lines. It's it generally the same approach as uh, has been discussed by most, and that is in Syria we would like to have Arab faces on the ground uh, more predominantly than, than Western faces, right? I mean, it's just, uh, it just helps ensure that there's a more cohesive nature, if you will, relative to what's happening on the ground. Typically, we've had a policy, have we not, that U.S. troops are not going to be commanded by people other than U.S. officers, too. Is that correct? We have had that policy. As I said, we have occasionally violated it. Uh, U.S. forces were under Canadian command and multinational force operations in Zaire fairly briefly. Um, but I think as a general rule, it's the right policy. And, and more to the point, as I said, uh, there are simply too many occasions in which participation in the United States would change the political texture of the force in ways that I think would amplify the resistance to the force rather than, rather than the opposite. Where, whereas the enablers don't necessarily have that same kind of a profile, and yet there's no other country cap as capable as, as we are of producing these vital enablers to these missions. Uh, Ambassador, you, you have had this role, you've been at the United Nations, uh, Senator Cardin, which I appreciate deeply, raised the issue of just our payments, um, the amount that we, you know, we have 22 percent of the world's gross domestic product, uh, and yet we obviously contribute 28 and a half percent of the budget here. Um, our other, quote, uh, associates, if you will, at the United Nations obviously are not doing their part, otherwise our our amount would not be 28.5. You know, we find this same to be the case. I've referred to it now three times at NATO. It's where we desire for things to happen, it seems, more so than others, and therefore we end up uh, being financially exposed more than others. Uh, you've been in this role. Tell us, uh, from your perspective, what we as a country can do to, to seek equilibrium and to cause other countries to, to play their appropriate roles. Well, it's frustrating. I mean, we, and, and I think uh, you were right, Senator, to talk about the kind of mysterious ways in which the uh, budget is uh, negotiated, and very often right at the end of the year, just before Christmas, before everybody's in a rush to get out of there, and somehow at 3 o'clock in the morning, the U.N. budget gets uh, 
uh, gets agreed upon, and so you sometimes get some rather anomalous situations that uh, will arise. But I think we just have to keep working on that. I, I recognize that uh, we've not been uh, as successful as we ought to have been in, in keeping the peacekeeping assessments down. But again, in proportion to what it would cost to feel other kinds of forces uh, or our own uh, military expenditures for our own defense establishment, we're talking about relatively small amounts of money. Uh, and therefore, I just think we need to uh, do our best, but recognize that we may not achieve everything we hope to achieve in those negotiations. But I'm also reassured that some countries now are putting up more resources than they had before. I'm glad to hear that China is going to be assessed something on the order of 10% for peacekeeping, which is, if I recall correctly, a significant departure uh, from uh, 10 or 15 years ago when their contribution was a fraction of that. Senator Cardin. Mr. Ambassador, as you were describing the UN budget process, I thought you were describing the US budget process. I don't know where they learned those lessons, sir. Uh, Dr. Jones, thank you very much for your service. And you come here with a great deal of expertise on the United Nations, having worked as advisor to the Secretary General and Ambassador Nicoponi. You served in that position as ambassador, and you've served in so many other positions of foreign policy. So I, I want to follow up on the reform issues, and I'll tell you why. But first, let me suggest to the chairman uh, your suggestion on training is a very important uh, suggestion. I serve on the Board of Visitors of the U.S. Naval Academy, and I see firsthand the availability of training at the U.S. Naval Academy for some of our ally countries. We do, we do train uh, at our service academies of uh, foreign students. I think an arrangement with the United Nations in regards to their peacekeeping command may very well be uh, 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 a viable option to get greater um, ca capacity. And I, I would ask our staffs to take a look at that to see whether we can look at how our service academies could assist in this regard. It's, uh, it also helps us because having a more diversified student body at our academies uh, prepares us for the global missions that our military command needs to be aware of. So I thought that was a very good suggestion and I would ask if our staffs could perhaps follow up on that and see whether that's a viable option. But I, I want to talk about the absolutely the scales and assessment and the how these numbers come about. But I put it in context to a senator who strongly supports the United Nations and its mission and its budget. But if we were to put a UN reform bill on the floor of the United States Senate, the type of amendments that would be offered and the types of potential restrictions on the U.S. participation in the United Nations, getting a majority vote, and perhaps even a 60-vote threshold, is real. And the reason for that is because the lack of transparency in the United Nations and the illogical way that they go about their budgeting. Uh, we talk about burden sharing, and we recognize that it's disproportionate that the UN, U.S. taxpayers have been asked to take on a much stronger commitment than the developed countries, those who have the capacity, could do a lot more. It's true in NATO. It's true in our coalitions. It's true in individual participation globally. And it's certainly true in the United Nations. So I understand that we're getting a good 
value for our contributions to the United. I never doubt that. I agree with you completely. And it's, the peacekeeping missions are critically important to U.S. But it seems to me we have not been as effective as we need to in the transparency and reform within the United Nations process. And if we don't deal with it in a way that's understandable to the U.S. political system, then there could be negative consequences to the U.S. participation at the United Nations. So it's for that reason that I can't justify a 22% budget allocation and then 28.5% on peacekeeping, particularly in light of all the other commitments that U.S. taxpayers are making to international security issues. And I just would like to get your advice as to how is the most effective way for this senator and for the Congress to weigh in in a constructive way so that we can get the type of reforms we need in the United Nations. Well, uh, you know, I'm not as current on these issues as I was uh, when I was serving in that position, but I, I inherited, I was the beneficiary of Richard Holbrook's successful negotiation with, with respect to the last big arrear situation that we, and, and it took incredible work on his part, as the kind of work that only Richard Holbrook was capable of, and it was jawboning with the uh, membership, with the secretariat, working hard with the Congress, like Ms. Power bringing uh, the Security Council down to uh, visit uh, the Senate, which I think was a very, very good idea, and I think it'd be a good, and I'm sure you imparted this message to them when you met with them, I mean, you, you, and, and that's, those are the right people to pass that message to. I think it just requires uh, an intensive diplomatic effort with these countries to try and correct that situation. I'm pleased we have a 22% assessment for the, uh, the general assessment for the UN. Holbrook left that issue somewhat unresolved. If I remember correctly, it was 26 point something or other, and now it's gone up a percentage point or two uh, since he reached his agreement. But uh, I think we've just got to work that one really hard. And what I'd hate to see happen is that the arrears become so large that then it becomes some kind of a crisis situation uh, with regard to uh, whether or not we're gonna continue our uh, support or, uh, or, or which would undermine our support for the United Nations. Yeah. And, and that's the danger that I think you're describing. I don't have much to add. I would just add one point of context, which is sort of ironical. Um, we spent a lot of the last few years hearing countries talk about a United States in decline, uh, you know, relative decline in the United States, all this kind of stuff, the rise of new powers. Uh, I profoundly disagree with that underlying notion. And the reason I mentioned in this case is when you look at the scales of assessment, it was at about 30% in the height of the post-Cold War period, declined to about 25% as we made continual progress to bring the scale of assessment in line with our share of world GDP. And it's gone back up over the last three years, gone back up to 28% since the global financial crisis uh, because we've done much better in recovering from the global financial crisis than a number of our allies and partners in Europe and others. And so there's a, it's a kind of irony of the, of the moment that whereas people talk about U.S. decline, actually. It's, it's my understanding that the difference between 22% and 28% is not our share in the global economy. It's justified by our seat on the Security Council, which many of us interpret is to bust the 22% cap. It's both because the formula starts with what is the share of GDP. Mm -hmm. uh, you pay a premium by being rich, so rich countries pay more per share of GDP than poor countries, and then we pay an additional premium uh, by virtue of being a permanent member. And so it was going down uh, as our sh global share of GDP went down, 
uh, and it's gone back up a little bit, so it's just worth remembering the irony. But I don't, I don't disagree with anything that, that Ambassador Negroponte said in terms of the need to keep pushing on this. And it's an issue that's going to have to be made uh, an important priority with the incoming Secretary General. They're going to have to make it clear to the incoming Secretary General that to sustain support for the United Nations, it's impossible to explain uh, to the American public why we pay an outsized share of this bill. It is true uh, that we have an outside interest, an outsized interest in the performance. We're the only power that has interests in every region of the world and at the global level. Uh, so we have an outsized interest here as well. And to a certain extent, in all honesty, that reduces our leverage. Everybody knows that we have a, an outsized interest in these things. Be because we've assumed greater burdens, we have even greater burdens. That's Correct. That's an interesting <laughs> way of looking at it. Uh, let me ask one extra question, one ask, last question, if I might. Secretary, uh, Ambassador Powell, Power was pretty um, firm and optimistic about the September 28th meeting of the countries that are contributing um, resources to the UN peacekeeping. The commitments she over, she continues to state are just that, commitments. They have not been delivered yet. Uh, have you had a chance to review the September 28th uh, uh, results, and are you optimistic that, in fact, this will have greater participation by the countries that are capable of doing more? What's your prognosis on this? Uh, well, I was, uh, uh, had the honor of being invited to that meeting by the administration, so I was there for that, and I've been involved in, in helping the UN and helping the administration think through the preparation for it. Um, I, I'm semi optimistic. Uh, I think that the Europeans in particular, as they've drawn down in Afghanistan, they have capabilities that they're not using in that, in that context. They can contribute. The Dutch in Mali are, I think, the most important example of what we've seen so far. I think they recognize, they have a deep interest that if they're going to come to terms with their migration problem and their refugee problem, they've got to go and solve it in the places where they originate, and so they have an interest in, in helping to stabilize conflicts in Africa and, and beyond. So I, I'm somewhat optimistic. Uh, I would be very optimistic were it not for a very different reality, with it, which is uh, Russia and Ukraine, which is causing European governments, um, fully understandably, to reprioritize back to some older kinds of concerns uh, about NATO, about the containment of Russia, et cetera, and that's going to put pressure on European defense budgets and it's going to put pressure on European militaries to be worried about other things than conflicts in Africa. And so the two things are unfortunately happening at the same time. I think there is a genuine will from the Europeans and from the other countries like Korea that I mentioned to participate in UN peacekeeping. But at the same time, we're facing new challenges from China, from Russia, et cetera, and that, those are going to put different kinds of pressure. So I think she's very right to push the argument. I think the, the administration was right to pursue that initiative. Uh, but there are going to be other challenges we confront at the same time that will, I think, diminish the, the full impact that it might have had otherwise, unfortunately. I think we need to keep the spotlight on it. I think that was a great initiative by the president and have to be followed up. The other thing I might add with respect to contributing countries is uh, one uh, encouraging region of the world in that regard is uh, the willingness of cer certain Latin American countries to contribute to peacekeeping, uh, global peacekeeping, which they've been reluctant to do in the past. I mean, this mention of Colombia, for example, and, and Brazil, too. So. Uh, I, I thought that was encouraging, and I think uh, it's something that uh, the, the UN needs to avail itself of. Thank you. Thank you both for your service. Thank you. One of the great privileges that we have around here is uh, 
the access to people like you who are so respected and have the ability to share wisdom with us and experiences and we know that every day when we come to work so we want to thank you for your continued uh, involvement in issues of importance to our country for being here today um, as you can see a lot of our members are present uh, by asking questions later if you would uh, uh, without objection first of all the record will be open until the close of business friday but if you could respond in a fairly timely manner that would also be appreciated but we thank you for your service to our country we thank you for being here today and with that the meeting is adjourned okay thank you thank you for the invitation